0: Radio. This is Robbie Martin. So today's episode is essentially just going to be a follow-up of the previous Media Roots episode. If you didn't catch that, I recommend going back and listening to that. It's available to non-subscribers as well. It was titled Amerithrax 20th Anniversary. The St. Petersburg letters, Bruce Ivins' by location, and the Anthrax timeline. This batch of hoax Anthrax letters that was sent from St. Petersburg, Florida, it really turns the whole Anthrax case upside down, I think. And I already explained to a large degree why in the last episode, but since I recorded the last episode, I've collected a lot more information. I've tried to nail down the timeline even more specifically with these hoax St. Petersburg letters compared to the real letters and found some interesting things. Um, I also had some time to reflect on my discussion with Howard Troxler, um, the recipient of a hoax anthrax letter, and I have some thoughts about that. And also, um, this Florida 2001 attacks map that I've been working on, this interactive map, that you may have heard referenced in the uh, two Florida-themed 9-11 episodes we did in September. Um, This map has grown quite large, and since the release of those episodes in September, I'd say that the map is about three or four times more dense with inputs. And by inputs, I mean everything from sites of uh, the 2001 anthrax attacks Locations of the 9 11 hijackers, locations of the 9 11 hijackers' associates, locations of the real estate agent who happened to have a strange connection to the first anthrax victim and the 9 11 hijackers. Uh, there's so much more in there. And I'm going to wait until towards the end of this episode to sort of surprise you with some revelations that I think are, again, uh, kind of explosive. And I think that. The press um probably just missed these originally. One of them in particular has to do with Rudy Giuliani. And, you know, as I've been looking at this stuff, Anthrax, 9-11, of course, there's always been a link between Rudy Giuliani playing sort of a role in the PR front for the Bush administration in both those attacks. He also seems to have played a role in uh potentially destroying evidence in both those attacks. Um, in Manhattan, with his cleanup efforts in New York, cleanup—I put that in quotes—and in Florida, again, where Rudy Giuliani had an anthrax cleanup company that was hired by the new building purchaser, David Rustine, uh, to clean up the site of the quarantined first anthrax crime scene. But after I've worked on this map, I mean, I found some incredibly bizarre things involving Rudy Giuliani and his associates and all the other subjects, and I'm going to save those to the end, but I've also found some new, I would say, confirmatory evidence of some kind of deeper relationship or connection between Mike and Gloria Irish and the 9-11 hijackers on the map as well, a whole bunch of weird stuff, so that's going to come at the end, but most of this episode is going to be about the 2001 anthrax attacks, new revelations. New information, uh, threads that I think that we should be following, different ways that I think we should be looking at this case to maybe widen the frame, and so we're not stuck in sort of these narrow assumed uh, uh, pathways about how this series of murders actually took place. I forgot to mention at the top of this podcast, along with this, you know, anniversary two-parter anthrax podcast, we're going to be releasing a pretty large. Document dump uh, with a bunch of documents uh, that have never been made public before, including lawsuits that were obtained by Gumby. Also, I am going to be providing the only known public report for the hoax letter in St. Petersburg that was sent to the St. Petersburg Times. But along with that, I'm also going to be providing zips and archive dumps of just everything that's already publicly available including these CDC files that I'm reading from now. So you can see this chart yourself if you wanted. Now, for me, the importance of going through some of these actual FBI official files again is not just to knock down specific evidence against Ivans. I mean, I think most of the people listening to this podcast who have heard me before, and most people who approach this type of politics tend to be cynical already and think that Ivans, you know, was probably set up or framed or that he's not really guilty. In fact, a lot of the, even just the generic political class had that sentiment that Ivans was probably not the only perp. So I don't think it's important to go through the FBI evidence again and the executive reports and, this, and the summaries that they actually officially released to just knock down the case against Bruce Ivins. I think I amply did that on the last podcast. It's actually really interesting to look at it to see how they've narrowed the frame to discover how they've stovepipe things so that you don't look at what they've omitted because when you look at the actual entire crime and then you also include those st petersburg letters you can see very easily how many things the fbi omitted to make their case against bruce ivans in terms of florida crime scene in terms of some of the actual anthrax victims causes of death and lots of other interesting things but what's omitted to make their case go down easier so many things that I'm going to pretty much spend the entire podcast going over them. Some of this may seem a little dry at first, but what I do, I actually provide evidence and research for the claims that I'm going to be making and why I think these parts of the overall anthrax murders are very significant and why it means a lot that the FBI, the official narrative sort of omits them. The FBI and I will show you evidence of this in this podcast, found many, many significant and noteworthy things that simply do not fit with the rest of the case they presented. They simply pretend these things either didn't happen or they just brush over them completely. So if you only focus on the ridiculous and weak specifics of the case made against Ivans, and that's sort of within the frame that you're working in, or you just go at it by default thinking, well, of course Ivans was, you know, he's probably not the guy. Well, yeah, I mean, you could look at it in an overly simplistic frame like that, but again, I think this is an important window to look into because most people who have looked at this have just tried to pick apart the circumstantial and forensic evidence they tried to build against Ivins. But when you include these other parts of the crime, it makes the Ivins case pretty much impossible, and it does make a very good case for coordination involving multiple people, I think. So this requires us to develop some new theories or at least requires me to speak openly about some other theories that put this more in the realm of a very sophisticated operation. Not just sophisticated anthrax manufacturing in a lab and sloppy execution operation, but a sophisticated overall operation that included a psychological aspect. Let's lay out a uh, assumed theories about the anthrax attacks and that's and that includes official and sort of counter narratives to it the 2001 anthrax attacks let's examine some of these theories both from the official story side and the popular counter narrative side and see if they make sense on their face and if they don't make sense on their face let's question them so first theory that the infections and deaths from the 2001 anthrax attacks were essentially all unintentional collateral damage. Now this is the main working theory of the FBI, essentially of the official story of the anthrax attacks. That because the people who died and got infected were not the people who the letters were addressed to, that in essence they were all unintentional collateral damage. The five victims who died from anthrax could not be traced directly to any known letter. Not with hard evidence, but only with vague recollection. Robert Stevens is the only one, through vague recollection, that people say that he put his face up to a letter and inhaled. The other people who died? No. This is what is known widely as the cross-contamination theory. That cross-contamination of all these anthrax spores going through the mail system, sort of randomly selected its victims through the winds, through people shuffling around, through who touched these envelopes, who passed them, who was healthy, who wasn't. That's the cross-contamination theory. But what is the alternate to that theory if that's not how all these victims died? One of the only other available theories, if that's not your frame, is that these victims were not chosen at random that they could have been deliberately targeted murders simultaneously to letters that were designed more to terrorize and spread fear. So listen carefully to what I'm saying. I do not believe with the available evidence that we can rule out the idea that there were simultaneously deliberately targeted attacks against these specific people somehow, simultaneously with letters designed to spread fear, threatening letters. In essence, both would be used to spread hysteria and fear, but besides the account of Robert Stevens, it seems as if the killer simply got lucky in the sense that it worked at all. So if this killer's intention was to just spread a bunch of anthrax spores all over the place and kill a bunch of marionine people and create hysteria, how did he only manage to kill five people? How not more? if all of this anthrax was all over these male sorters and they could see the spread of all these spores all over the place, how did male sorters spread all this stuff around so vigorously but only 15 infections and 5 deaths? I mean, if the victims were all clustered in one very specific area, it would make more sense that only 5 victims died. So in an article by Don Foster that, interestingly enough, has been purged from an October 2003 issue of Vanity Fair because of a lawsuit via Stephen Hatfield, one of the named person of interest in the anthrax investigation by the FBI. Stephen Hatfield basically got put through the ringer by the press in the early like 2000s, like 2003-ish. And he ended up suing them, and Vanity Fair had to remove one of their articles. The article still survived in archive form. And in this article, Don Foster of Vanity Fair says, that the last anthrax victim, the 94-year-old Audley Lundgren in Connecticut, succumbed to anthrax on November 21st. The infection was believed to have come from a cross-contaminated letter. An estimated 85 million pieces of mail were processed by the Washington, D.C. and New Jersey postal facilities while the Daschle and Leahy letters were in the system. It's surprising How few of us got sick. Yeah, that's a really incredibly important point. How did so few people get sick if 85 million pieces of mail were processed during this time period and only five people died and someone as far away as Connecticut died? So I guess my question is, is there any evidence to suggest that the killer or killers did any of this in person or in close proximity to the victim? Not a letter. Well, yes, there is. There's actually autopsy reports and clinical reports from the death of Kathy Nguyen, I'm going to talk about later, that does show us that she received a very large dose of inhalation anthrax. And the FBI doesn't really seem to want to talk about this anymore. They don't really say anything about it in their report at all. But originally, the FBI was throwing hints out all over the place uh, that one of the anthrax murder victims, the fourth victim, received an in-person dose and then that story just sort of got lost in the ether so at one time that was their working theory an infant son of abc news employee who were located at 47 east 66th street in new york which is almost a mile away from cbs uh, the infant son developed cutaneous skin anthrax no known envelope or origin point Claire Fletcher of CBS News, located at 51 West 52nd Street, New York, presented a cutaneous skin anthrax lesion on October 1st, no known envelope or origin point. Anthrax was also found in Dan Rather's office, apparently, in the same building. This CBS building was over a thousand feet away from the NBC building, where a real anthrax letter was actually sent. Now, real anthrax letters were sent to the New York Post building and the NBC building. So what I'm saying here is, there isn't some evidence that suggests that the anthrax sent to NBC and New York Post was so potent and so weaponized that it just flew thousands of feet away, in some cases even a mile away, to a completely different media building and infected people there. It just doesn't add up. So again, what I'm suggesting is that there is no reason to believe that especially the anthrax that appeared and then infected people, including the infant child of an ABC News employee and Claire Fletcher of CBS, there is no reason to suggest that that anthrax actually came from either of those envelopes. I mean, sure, you could have just sent a bunch of anthrax lace envelopes that weren't sealed up, to all these different media organizations and just hope that aerosolized anthrax would fly through the ventilation system and kill and infect as many people as possible, but that might be a little bit too chaotic and might not be able to be controlled. What if some of this anthrax was planted? And I think because the FBI and the CDC could not identify an origin point of infection for Kathy Nguyen, the hospital worker at Ear, Nose, and Throat in Manhattan, They cannot identify an origin point for some of these infections that didn't lead to deaths. But in all the other instances I just mentioned to you, there is no known origin point. But for some reason, they only approach this as if anthrax came from letters. Or so, that's what the official record shows. That's what the Justice Department executive summary shows. That's what the FBI wants people to think now. But in fact, this is not true. They have actually admitted multiple times in past press statements, statements to the media, through various anonymous officials, that they actually were looking beyond letters. Now, according to Don Foster's article in Vanity Fair, and Don Foster at this time was talking to an FBI source, and this is really interesting. He implies that the FBI at one point was apparently looking into an in-person origin point for the cause of death of Kathy Nguyen. The second to last anthrax death. The New York hospital worker. Meaning that they thought that whoever conducted her murder actually gave her directly a, quote, real snoutful of anthrax. Now this is what Don Foster says. He says he sent an email to a friend in the FBI's New York field office. Now he was just asking on the off chance if they tried to swab the dumpsters near Kathy Nguyen's apartment where she dropped her trash. Or if the anthrax-laced letter disposed of by some of these other news companies could have left spores in the air that could have gotten sufficiently inhaled by a random person like her. This is what's interesting. He says, in response, his FBI source says that they think Kathy Nguyen got a real snoutful of anthrax. The task force hoped that this latest fatality, her specifically, would lead them straight to the killer. Perhaps there was still a person or location that could account for her exposure to airborne anthrax. My source wrote, though, in the end, Kathy Nguyen's death was written off as an insoluble mystery. Well, that's very interesting because that implies right there that the FBI was at one time looking beyond just the letters. That they thought that how she died could lead them directly to killer. Now, that's weird. She's seemingly a completely random collateral damage victim. Why did they think that her death could lead them directly to the killer? Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, who I mentioned on the last episode, who came up with what I think is one of the most important timelines ever in the Anthrax investigations... She says in her timeline that clinical observations of Kathy Nguyen suggest a large initial dose of anthrax. Well, I tend to get excited sometimes when going back into this research and finding new things. So given that, I have to watch myself and make sure that I'm not chasing down a false lead or reading too much into something. So this Don Foster article where he's talking to one of his FBI sources He's insinuating an in-person origin point for Kathy Nguyen's anthrax infection. I had to make sure that I wasn't leaning on this one FBI agent's opinion about this too much. Let me just show you some other things that actually get much stranger in terms of how the FBI at least initially talked about Kathy Nguyen's murder. Not just the FBI, but also CDC officials and FBI officials on record as well saying some very surprising things that have sort of been written out of the official record about her. And perhaps you can attribute some of this to just early reporting where things were not certain yet, but there's still some rather odd things that they're saying that I think are very notable. And this is also, I would say, mostly confirmed in the justice department's FBI executive summary of the attacks. They list cross-contamination for the death of Ottilie Lundgren, the 94-year-old woman in Connecticut who died, who was the last victim from the anthrax attacks, as cross-contamination. But they don't list a cause of death for Kathy Nguyen on their final executive summary. In fact, she's only mentioned twice in the report, and they don't even bother to speculate in their own report how she got anthrax. They just don't. They ignore it completely. So given that, let me read to you what I found, which I think is actually quite bizarre. I'm from USA Today, November 19th, 2001. It says, unlike with the other victims, investigators say there is yet no evidence that the former Vietnamese refugee came in contact with an anthrax-contaminated letter. How she came in contact with the lethal spores has baffled scores of detectives, scientists, and public health experts who have checked in with her friends and neighbors scoured her a bronx apartment searched her manhattan job site and tested her subway route from the book american anthrax by gene guliman i think that's how you pronounce her name she seems kind of like a spookish type writer national security state typewriter but in her own book she does confirm this New York City's Joint Terrorism Team and CDC's Steve Ostroff found no signs of anthrax spores in the basement stockroom and the mailroom of Manhattan Ear, Nose, and Throat Hospital on East 64th Street, where Kathy worked. They found no signs of anthrax spores in the apartment where she lived alone in the South Bronx. Investigators took environmental samples from virtually every place where Kathy Nguyen's co-workers, neighbors, and friends said she spent her normal routes. The several churches she attended, her favorite neighborhood shops and food stores in Chinatown, and her preferred Manhattan department store, Macy's. After weeks of searching, they found other pathogens, but no B. anthracis. So is this why this FBI agent is sort of telling Don Foster that they think that this could lead directly to the killer because there is no forensic spore trail that's linking her to a letter? Well, it sounds like it. It does, right? Another book called The Mirage Man by David William, which is about the anthrax attacks, also confirms this fact. He says on page 157 of his book, on October 31st, 2001, Kathy Nguyen had died of inhalation anthrax, yet no trace of the bacterium was ever found in the hospital or in her apartment building. Now, see this is actually not true. The author goes on to say that Nguyen's fate evoked immediate expressions of fear from health authorities that even the most minuscule amount of anthrax could kill. Well, this is only a partial truth because as I'm about to read to you, there were officials making statements saying that, but they actually said that was less likely. That they didn't think this was cross-contamination. They were leaning in the other direction, in fact. Now, how has this been omitted from the official anthrax record? From the Washington Post, November 11, 2001, by authors Guy, Gugliotta, Ben White, an article titled, Kathy Nguyen Mystery Link, Bronx Woman's Death from Spores, Baffles Medical Experts. Baffles them. That's the headline. Well, is that a sensationalist headline? Well, let me read to you several very interesting quotes from this article. It starts pretty benign, but you'll see sort of where I'm going with this. Her case is crucial because it bears no relationship to any other. It could be the harbinger of a new wave of anthrax victims, or it could be the best hope yet of finding who was responsible for the nation's bioterrorism outbreak. Find out how Kathy Nguyen caught the disease, investigators say, and you... Will find the killer. There are two hypotheses. Either Nguyen was so anthrax prone that she contracted the disease by inhaling a tiny number of spores from a contaminated letter or other object intended for someone else. And even if that was the case, we would have probably found traces of spores. They didn't, keep in mind. Continuing. Or she became infected after an encounter accidental or perhaps even deliberate. With the person or persons responsible for spreading the bacteria that have infected 17 people and killed four this is before Ottilie Lundgren died the scientists are also plotting forward the cdc checked the bacteria in the lungs and found it indistinguishable from the pathogens in the earlier new york and dashel letters however this did not appreciably advance the investigation because it said nothing about either spore size Or the sophistication of the aerosol that infected Kathy Nguyen. Well, that actually goes against what the FBI official was telling Don Foster, doesn't it? That he believes that she took in a snoutful of anthrax. That sounds like she was basically inhaled it directly into her face. So is the CDC being wishy-washy there? Of course they fucking are. From the very outset of this, it wasn't just the FBI trying to misdirect people and only get people to look at certain aspects of the case it was the cdc also the cdc was clearly being politically steered in some way during this whole process and it even seems like the bush administration via john ashcroft was deliberately pitting them against the fbi and sort of creating and helping exacerbate the tensions there and of course actually not giving the fbi power at first So yes, I think it's safe to say that of course they're being wishy-washy. Of course they fucking are. They already had the clinical results in by that time. And the earlier clinical results were the ones that showed exactly what Don Foster's source had told them. You can find this on the UCLA's Anthrax database, and they have a pretty incredible database of old stories. But they also have a database of actual medical documentation. And we're going to actually provide to you the downloads for all four of the available medical reports that confirms this and what i said from barbara hatch rosenberg earlier early clinical observations suggest a large initial dose the cdc already knew that so for them to be like yeah maybe she was ultra ultra sensitive to the most microscopic spores and she couldn't handle an anthrax hit like most of the population's genetics can or something i mean that's a Obviously a theory just thrown out there just meant to misdirect people, I think. Going back to the CDC officials' statements from this article. Was Nguyen an outlier because she represented a tiny percentage of the population that could inhale a minuscule number of spores and then die of pulmonary anthrax weeks after initial exposure? Perhaps, but Ostroff said that possibility is diminishing with time. Keep that in mind. This is not even the FBI at this point. This is now the CDC basically confirming what I have just said. It's the less likely explanation, he said. I think the most likely explanation is that her exposure was relatively proximate to her onset of illness. If this is the case, then Kathy Nguyen is an outlier for another reason. And suspicion is growing that she somehow came in contact with the perpetrator or perpetrators of the anthrax outbreak wow that's absolutely fascinating that the cdc was also putting this out there that they believed that she had an in-person contact with the perpetrator somehow and they say deliberate or accidental i guess that means that maybe the anthrax perpetrator was just so contaminated with anthrax that they accidentally brushed into kathy and poofed a, a blast of anthrax powder onto her you know from their clothing you know, that that transferred some spores over to her or she was intentionally targeted. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating that this is what they were officially putting out there with her. And what is it about her that made them say this? I mean, if the CDC is saying they can't tell how much anthrax she took in and that you could be an outlier, but then they're saying that seems less likely that she must've been in close proximity. What makes them say that? Is there some kind of autopsy result out there with her anthrax infection that shows definitive proof that she did take in like as this fbi agent said a snort full of anthrax i'm not a medical expert i'm not a doctor but there are four available reports uh and we are going to provide them in our archive with the release of this podcast so if you know someone who understands this kind of language in these types of reports they can verify what i'm saying now there's even more stories coming out Uh, that get, I think, even weirder about her and the way that the government was talking about her right after she died. They were basically trying to track down all her movements and even insinuating some things in media reports that she had like a mysterious lifestyle. She was a workaholic. Um, you know. Even though a lot of people knew her and knew her as friendly, it was hard to track down her movements. And without being able to track down her movements and her activities for the previous few weeks, they don't really know. They're kind of, uh, they're you know, they're sort of running around in the dark trying to figure this out, interviewing everybody she knows. So there's already sort of this mild insinuation out there that she led this mysterious lifestyle. She was a Vietnamese refugee uh, from the war. She didn't have many close friends or family in the area. She lived alone. Jeffrey Copeland, for some reason, the head of the CDC during this time period, he decided to comment on. The frustration of the mysteriousness of Kathy Nguyen's lifestyle. He says, I am struck at how difficult it is to get the kind of detailed information we need on day to day, hour to hour activities when someone lives alone and didn't have a lot of close confidence. CDC Director Copland said, There are things that any one of us do that aren't necessarily predictable and you can't account for, and that's the stuff we need. I mean, what is he doing there? What is he? What kind of insinuation is he putting out there? During the time period, you have to think this is post nine eleven, when you're making these insinuations about somebody, even if they're a victim of a terrorist attack, it it can have this sort of hint to it, where it's like, well, ooh, is this person maybe like a sleeper cell? Were they like part of nine? Are are they maybe connected to this? Like, I mean, they're not white. Uh She's Asian, so maybe you know there are like Asian Muslim terrorists, you know, in Indonesia and whatever. There's like a whole like series of thoughts that that heightened atmosphere could produce at the time. So I believe this was intentional, but I'm not sure if it's the CDC spokesperson who's the one that seeded suspicion about her lifestyle being so quote unquote mysterious or not. But the tragic part is if you Google search Kathy Nguyen's name, Kathy with a K N G U Y E N anthrax you'll see how almost every single story about her death isn't just implying that her death is an outlier or that the circumstances of her death are mysterious because some articles do imply that but almost every article is also seeming to cast some kind of aspersion on her like she's this mysterious weird person who's who was she why was she so alone and what's going on with her and and just a sampling of different article headlines and how they described her right after she died. And I think this is actually quite sad. The New York Post article is called The Last Mysterious Days of Anthrax Victim. N.R. Kleinfeld of the New York Times headline is The Elusive Life of Anthrax Victim. Investigators pick routine apart for leads. So far, there are none. And then here's a quote from the article. Father Carlos Rodriguez, the pastor at St. John." Roman Catholic Church, who presided over Kathy Nguyen's funeral yesterday, said investigators visited him looking for details. All he could tell them, he said, was that she often attended his 10 a.m. Mass and that she also worshiped at a Catholic church in Midtown Manhattan. He wasn't sure which one. What's more, he told authorities that she liked to shop for groceries in Chinatown, but he didn't know which shops. That's a mystery right there, he said. Other than being at work and home, I don't know where she went. Strange article, again, from the New York Times, an opinion piece called The Private Life of Kathy Nguyen, which seems oddly voyeuristic and sort of like, oh, look at this poor, lonely, sad woman, but she was also really mysterious. What's up with her? There's a quote. that says, the authorities want three weeks of Kathy Nguyen's life. What they want from those three weeks is everything, every step, every breath, every contact with the material world, no matter how slight. It would be trouble enough for anyone to rebuild these three weeks in that kind of detail, to remember, for instance, the almost unnoticeable variations in a workday commute. But in Kathy's case, there is no one to help with the reconstruction. No one to look back over the narrative of her life. Are you picking up on this weird theme here? Washington Post headline Kathy Nguyen's Mystery Anthrax Link. Here's some odd quotes choice quotes they put in here i thought i knew her said anna rodriguez who lives two floors above kathy Nguyen's apartment but when they started asking me about her husband and her son and all that stuff i didn't know anything about that they tried to use her metro card to trace her movements in the days before she fell sick but a coworker had lent her the card the trips were not all hers investigators found out she liked to pay her bills with postal money orders case of new york anthrax victim intrigues officials usa today here's the quote in life kathy Nguyen was a solitary figure a woman whose daily routines and even birth name were largely unknown even to her tight circle of friends neighbors and coworkers. it's already getting kind of like sleeper cell insinuation i mean imagine right after 9-11 what are they trying to insinuate And I'm not just pulling this out of my ass. I actually found more proof uh, that the FBI themselves was basically trying to Stephen hatfield Kathy Nguyen, the fourth anthrax murder victim. In fact, this is the only example I know of any of the actual anthrax victims where a federal law enforcement official tried to come out and imply that they might have even been involved in the crime itself. An FBI official actually comes out and says this about Kathy Nguyen. I was pretty shocked to find this. Now, that CDC statement about it being deliberate, that seems to imply, well, maybe, you know, the anthrax perpetrator deliberately targeted her. But were they also implying that maybe she was handling anthrax deliberately, but got accidentally infected? Now, that's me completely speculating if that's what the CDC was thinking when they said that. But here's where it gets strange. The CDC director went on record and insinuated some things about Kathy Nguyen that made her seem suspicious. But in the same article by Kevin McCoy and Therese Jones for USA Today, November 19th, 2001, they actually have an anonymous, high ranking FBI official, they call them. They don't name them in the article. This is where it gets wild. The FBI actually puts out in a USA Today article, albeit anonymously, but that that really doesn't matter in this case, I don't think. The FBI official's actual quote. She could have been making it herself, the FBI official said. Excuse me? So this FBI official decided to put in a USA Today article and tell reporters that The second-to-last anthrax murder victim could have been making anthrax herself? Huh. That's quite an explosive thing to just throw out there. Why would they randomly just put that out there? The USA Today article sort of leads up to this quote by saying, or as far-fetched as it might seem, she could have been making it herself, the FBI official said. So The FBI officials sort of say, you know, this is a far-fetched theory. We're working on this. It's really far-fetched, but one of the theories is that she could have made it herself. It doesn't seem that way in the context of the article. I'm not going to read to you the whole article, but in the context of it, it does seem as if this is sort of more where the FBI is leaning towards, that she had to have come in personal contact somehow with the source of these anthrax spores, not from a letter. And yes, it's early November 11th, 2001, Very early into this investigation, but no, they never did find any trace of anthrax spores again. They never went back to her apartment or her places of work and retraced her steps to try to find anthrax spores again. They essentially just ignored that part of the investigation. As Don Foster basically confirmed earlier, it was an insoluble mystery aspect of the investigation. It's important to remember that Kathy Nguyen's death her murder, was the only death, the only fatality from the 2001 anthrax attacks to take place in New York City. And I think this is important because I think without the sort of the fear levels being raised up in New York City specifically, piggybacking off 9-11, you wouldn't have had that maximum oomph either. So it was very lucky for whoever did this, if it was just sort of a sloppy thing piggybacking off of 9-11, a random collateral damage victim in New York City. Perfect, right? I mean, this could be Rudy's baby. You know, it's a New York anthrax death. Another terrorist attack to add on to his pile. And threw it onto his pile, he did. The disgusting thing is, if you search for Kathy Nguyen's name on Google Images, you actually find more pictures of Rudy Giuliani grandstanding and doing press conferences around her death than you do of the actual Kathy Nguyen, Anthrax murder victim. And one of them for me is particularly horrifying. It's Rudy Giuliani grinning with Bernard Carrick with this weird, shit-eating, clown-like grin on his face in the background while Rudy is doing a press conference about this poor woman's death. Rudy Giuliani actually did use Kathy Nguyen as sort of a tokenistic way for him to perpetuate his spotlight post 9-11 as America's 9-11 mayor. America's mayor fighting terrorists. Now he was in the trenches of fighting bioterrorism and using Kathy Nguyen as a tokenistic prop. Some people even saw how craven and opportunistic Rudy was at this time and commented on the fact that he was doing all these press conferences trying to get all this publicity for himself at the nbc building when the letter hit there then he would actually go to manhattan ear nose and throat do these little photo tours photo op tours of him walking through there's even photographs of him searching through one of their mail bins it's really strange actually and the critique he even got at the time was that he was merely just trying to extend his 9-11 spotlight his tours of the pile with Dick Cheney, with George W. Bush. This was now him touring the Amerithrax crime scene, perpetuating his America's Mayor spotlight. But enough about fucking Rudy Giuliani. This is about Kathy Nguyen. One of the digital footprints of her, when you look her up online, you actually mostly find pictures of Rudy Giuliani. In terms of people associated that pop up with her name in Google Images, it's mostly Rudy and it's fucking disgusting and how awful is it for them to be insinuating all this stuff about the woman these terrible things i mean the insinuations in and of themselves but then basically blaming her for the anthrax attacks saying that she might have been part of it i mean they basically just took advantage of the fact that this woman did seem like she lived alone she led a very lonely lifestyle and it was mostly by choice. She just chose to live in sort of isolation. She had, did have friends, but they didn't really get that close to her. And that was her by choice. She did have a son that died in a motorcycle accident. Her husband divorced her a long time ago. So it's not anybody's business why this woman chose to live alone like this. It's not anybody's business at all. And this is from that actually that same article that was quoting a bunch of nasty insinuations about her from the CDC official. But it ends, I think, in just a very heartbreaking way. The article talks about how when she came down ill on October 25th when Kathy Nguyen started to feel ill, she just continued to go to work for the next two days. She just, it was inconceivable to her to stop working. And she was such a private person that by the time she became so ill that she was feeling so short of breath that she knew that she needed to be taken to the emergency room. Basically she reached out to someone and it was something she never would have done. She reached out to the superintendent in the building, a guy named David Cruz. And he knew her, you know, as like a, a friendly woman in the building, but he knew her as someone being very private. And when he, when Basically, you know, no one in the building hardly ever asked him to do something like this. So when he knew when that she did, when that she came up to him basically gasping for air, he remembers this visual. That he he had to take her. He had to drop what he was doing and take her because it had to have been serious. So on Sunday, October twenty eighth, after she was already ill for two days, she decided to go to work anyways. David Cruz takes her to the hospital. He has a, apparently a long conversation with her in the car, and someone tries to ask her, you know, what did, they, what did you talk about? What were her sort of, What was the last conversation you had with her like? He didn't want to say. Out of respect for Kathy's privacy, David wouldn't tell the press what she said. <clears throat> but apparently this came out, what she said, as some of her final words in the hospital. They put her on a ventilator immediately when she got to the hospital. They just had no other choice, apparently. And just before she went into intensive care, she beckoned over the physician, the doctor, who was there treating her case, Jeffrey Glick. And she said to him, Please don't leave me. I'm just all alone in the world. She died a little over two days later. On October 31st. So the question we should be asking here is, did the FBI and CDC just take advantage of this blank slate of a life history that was Kathy Nguyen, who led a very private and solitary life of her own choosing? Did they just take advantage of this black hole of information and use it to drum up some kind of random hysteria about her getting potentially getting blasted with a cloud of anthrax in person or is there something else going on here why would an fbi official come out and say that she was basically complicit in the crime why would they do this are they just merely taking advantage of the fact that there's so little information about her or is there another reason why they did this were they trying to even amp up the anthrax attacks to a point where it would be like there's a biological attack happening right now in New York City and we don't know who's doing it. It's not even coming from letters anymore. This is like anthrax being dropped on New York City subways and stuff. I mean, in some ways, actually, I think we're lucky that the anthrax attacks didn't get amped up to a much more hysterical level. Because with the death of Kathy Nguyen and Ottilie Lundgren, it easily could have been spun that way, especially because they didn't find any spores around them. Now, this is also sort of a little bit weird, and you have to go with me for a moment here because this is going to sound maybe a little tinfoil hat or maybe a little kooky to some people out there. But let's just theorize that these people were actually directly targeted, but made to look random. And that the letters themselves and the threats in them were meant to be another layer of whatever this was. That the actual murders were meant to be in stealth and were meant to go relatively undetected. Perhaps, this is complete speculation on my part. Another layer to this was sending out threatening letters that some of them contained real anthrax, some of them contained fake anthrax. And then another layer of this was somehow making sure that enough microscopic anthrax spores were distributed through the mail system so that it would basically be completely untraceable and there would just be so much anthrax you know detectable when you try to swab things that it would just create a really confusing picture of what happened and it would give the appearance that all this anthrax was just going through the mail constantly so i guess what i'm saying is if you look at this from the angle that it wasn't just a lone nut or a couple of crazy scientists who had a bone to pick you know, and wanted more biodefense funding. And you look at it from the perspective of this was some kind of operation, because I haven't really gone into that angle of what you know, it could possibly be, but what if it was some kind of wider operation that involved many people in, in the so-called anthrax attacks? Then you would have to imagine that it wouldn't have been safe enough or it would have been actually too risky to just send envelopes to the mail, you know, because apparently these envelopes were taped up on all the corners. It would have been too risky. It would have been too random to do that. They might've killed too many people. They might've not killed any people. So in my opinion, I do think that we need to start possibly widening the frame here and look at this as something that was very, very deliberate and calculated but made to seem sloppy, made to seem sort of meta, made to seem like a sloppy false flag, made even to seem like it's something that a disgruntled bioweapon scientist might do. I mean, we already know that there were people in the Bush administration trying to point fingers at certain anthrax suspects like Stephen Hadfield, even though Hadfield is sketchy as fuck. Very sketchy character. I mean, if you look at his background, it makes sense to me why he was a suspect. And I still don't think that he's someone who's completely clean in regards to this entire case. However, I think we need to be very careful about what information we trust out there. So this goes to the magic mail sorter theory that the machine shook up the contaminated anthrax letters enough to spread spores everywhere. So this is a CDC presentation actually put on in 2002, put on by a man named timothy h holtz md he also worked for the new york city department of health and this was a paper and a powerpoint presentation that he put on march 26 2002 at the international conference on emerging infectious diseases late breaker two session now this appears to be the most influential paper in terms of shaping the public perceptions of and also the fbi's Investigation of the 2001 anthrax attacks when it comes to the catch all mail sorting machine contamination theory. Now, this is interesting too. And he's talking about Kathy Nguyen. They admit, the CDC guy admits, that she could have been exposed on a New York City street or a subway system. And it says, We will likely never know. And also, again, emphasizing this idea of some kind of in person exposure. Limitations. Gaps in reconstructed timeline during the incubation period mean that exposure could have occurred in locations not tested. Dry swab method may have missed sparse contamination despite repeated testing. It says no evidence of anthrax aerosol release in her workplace, home, mail facilities, or subway. Route of exposure remains unknown. Challenge of investigating isolated cases using standard techniques. This CDC scientist establishes what he calls a mail flow in Florida, New Jersey, New York, and DC. And this is based on pretty much all of the data that they gathered. There was never any more swabbing done after this point in 2002, as far as I know, by the FBI or anybody else, to see if there was any more traces of anthrax to maybe add some more detail to this trail. So what's very interesting is they believe they can trace the anthrax all from, you know, an origin point in New Jersey because they can find infections and confirmed or suspected anthrax cases, you know, linked to all these different post offices and stuff. And they show a flow chart here. And I'm going to provide this document. But the reason I'm bringing up this chart is because it shows how weak their case actually is, that the Deaths were from the anthrax letters. They can trace anthrax going through all these different postal facilities, but that doesn't really link directly to the letters. It's all vague guesswork at that point. And specifically, they have a missing link to Florida. There is no mail spore tracing, swab tracing of anthrax spores from New Jersey to Florida. That's something I just learned in between recording the last and this podcast. So, they claim to have evidence, you know, DNA swab evidence of anthrax spores in all these other locations in Connecticut and New York postal facilities to create some kind of trail of male cross contamination, vaguely speaking. But they have none at all going from New Jersey to West Palm Beach, Florida, which they claim. Is the first location in florida where environmental samples test positive at the west palm beach post office the main post office in west palm beach and then from there they claim that the green acres post office in florida the blue lake post office the lake worth post office in florida and the boca raton substation post office in florida all had environmental samples that tested positive for anthrax, but no confirmed anthrax cases or even suspected cases until it got straight to AMI. In all these other instances, they're claiming that the anthrax spread to several unintended recipients due to mail sorting at these hubs. In Florida, it somehow even though it was tested in the environment, there were no confirmed anthrax cases or suspected anthrax cases until it reached the AMI building, unlike these other locations. So I hope this is all making sense. I know this is a little bit hyper-detailed, maybe a little bit confusing. But basically what I'm saying is the main theory behind why these people got killed in the anthrax attacks, these five seemingly random people, including two postal workers, is basically the magic mail sorter theory. That these mail sorting machines shook up the anthrax vigorously enough to spread them to all these random people, but only ended up killing five. And yet, in some instances, they actually cannot trace a letter to a mail sorting machine specifically. They were not able to trace some of the letters directly to the nearest potential mail sorting machine. And in one instance, they even say, well, that's because the letters were very carefully taped shut. The corners of them are taped because the person only wanted the anthrax to come out when it was open. Well, Robert Graysmith in his anthrax book kind of goes into this idea, well, were the spores microscopic enough to pass through paper? It it makes it seem like all these letters kind of ripped open, which also implies some kind of very sloppy execution. What if it was just made to look like sloppy execution on one level of this? And what if Judith Miller actually plays a much bigger role in all of the sort of theatrics of this, sort of almost like an extension of Dark Winter itself? Go with me for a second here. Is it possible that Judith Miller herself, in a later New York Times article on December 4th, 2001, actually may have kickstarted the magic mail sorter theory? The cross-contamination catch-all button-up theory. I mean, is this theory just by design a way to just sort of make it seem like yeah, there's just so much anthrax out there that what are we going to do? It's hard to trace. You know, cross-contamination just probably killed all these people. It's the easiest explanation. Is that theory just by design just meant to sort of whitewash things? Like, yeah, obviously. And I do think this is one of the earliest theories put out there designed to just sort of whitewash things. And keep in mind, this came out about a month and a half after, there was more than just insinuation about Kathy Nguyen, anthrax victim, who received like a fatal dose up close, breathed in, not from a letter. And again, if there's this much random cross-contamination, and in some cases even they can't trace direct paths of spores, and in many cases they can't, they just can find spores in different postal annexes and such, then in a, in a way this really makes it virtually untraceable in terms of using the male and tracing spores through the male as a way to trace it. So again, it reinforces the idea that that's a weak catch-all, convenient whitewash. But one of the earliest we have in the anthrax case, and I just want to be more specific in Judith Miller's article, she actually uses Ottilie Lundgren's death as a jumping off point to say that thousands of letters may have had traces of anthrax all throughout the U.S., like unfatal doses to a normal person, but fatal enough for someone like Ottilie Lundgren. And she also goes on to say, quote, fatal enough too for people like Kathy Nguyen. Judith Miller, in a way, is just sort of trying to wrap a neat bow around two of the more anomalous anthrax deaths, specifically that of Kathy Nguyen, who was young and healthy. Audley Lundgren was 94 years old. But here's Judith Miller putting out this new information that was released by Tommy Thompson of Health and Human Services saying that thousands of letters all across the United States and all different places, so many different places now have traces of anthrax on them. And Judith Miller also reports in her article that federal officials said yesterday that anthrax spores had most likely been dispersed not only by mail-sorting machines, but also by the equipment that stamps letters. In stamping such letters, Dr. Copland said, there is physical ramming of the letter by the stamping device that in and of itself may cause some dispersion through the envelope. If one cancelling machine was contaminated, he added, spores could have possibly spread to cancelling machines alongside it. Postal officials have found traces of anthrax bacteria In about 20 sorting centers and post offices in several states. They are also raising the possibility that cross-contamination may have caused the death of Mrs. Nguyen. Okay, so again, they didn't find forensic evidence. It's just a total guess. So it's interesting that here's Judith Miller again performing in the propaganda campaign to whitewash what's going on and to throw out the magic mail sorter theory, apparently. The magic mail sorter theory explains Audley Lundgren's death and Kathy Nguyen's death in here. But it also implies that there's just so much anthrax around at this point in several states that some random people were bound to get killed. It just sort of meant to reinforce this idea that the randomness of it makes sense when it really doesn't. So I think we have to be very suspicious of Judith Miller and pretty much any story she's written about this. And I confess to Whitney Webb on her stream today that I bought a New York Times subscription just so I can look at all the original articles that she wrote about anthrax and just have them all you know download them all take screenshots of them all because some of that stuff is hard to find and New York Times made it harder and harder to break through their paywall now so but again the more and more I look at the anthrax attacks and zoom out from the anthrax attacks and 9-11 and all this stuff as possibly interrelated The less I do think this is a sloppy operation and the more I think it was made to look like one as maybe even a red herring. We already know that the way that the anthrax letters were written were made to look like some crazy person trying to imitate a Muslim or even spelling words wrong like penicillin. Now, obviously we have to question this idea that the Bush administration didn't jump on this opportunity to call this terrorism and that John Ashcroft apparently according to Robert Graysmith, which is crazy that Robert Graysmith apologizes for him, but that John Ashkoff apparently, because he wanted to save lives and not let the FBI run roughshod over it, the crime scene, that he allowed the CDC to basically take it over and not let in the FBI until like six days after the Anthrax death. I mean, this is essentially the Zodiac author defending them destroying a forensic crime scene and allowing the CDC to continue to destroy every hour that they were in there a forensic crime scene. And also this idea that they were in there to save lives, well, they didn't tell the employees to immediately evacuate. They actually even didn't even go in there with protective gear on. They went in there with just gloves. Apparently, some of these scientists knew immediately it was inhalation anthrax just by looking at the concentration of the bacteria. They knew it wasn't ingested. So if they knew that, why were they just being so reckless with risking people's lives like this? We have to question this idea that the Bush administration was acting responsibly here. This seems like it's part of the cover-up. This seems like it was maybe even delayed on purpose so that the crime scene itself could be destroyed. And I mean this very seriously. I don't think this is a leap to take. We need to understand why the Bush administration did this. In most instances, when it comes to like 9-11 cover-ups, there were people and suspicious characters before 9-11 who did things to prevent search warrants and inquiries and things like that. But this is after the anthrax attacks that the FBI is not being allowed to go in here. So what if they thought it came from a letter? Even if there are people in the FBI who are like, yeah, it came from a letter. So, you know, we're not really going to find any like fingerprints or anything in there. I mean, the crime scene, is still technically unsalvageable the more time that they're not allowed in there and the more time employees are allowed to stay in there and the more time the CDC is allowed to just be in there and swab who are not criminal investigators in and of themselves. The more time passes, the worse it gets. The CDC was not there to protect a crime scene. That fact remains very strange and it needs to be questioned. Now, maybe you can argue, well, you know, it wasn't the FBI who was really responsible for swabbing and tracing the anthrax trail and you know they were more focused on and oriented on they had tunnel vision on like terrorism and you know and apparently they were actually this is uh, apparently true they actually swabbed the properties and personal belongings that belonged to some of the 9-11 hijackers that live in florida apparently even some fbi agents wanted to swab for anthrax spores some of the 9-11 wreckage with the the airplane debris, to see if hijackers brought anthrax on the plane. And this wasn't just a media rumor or something that I randomly came across in Robert Graysmith's book. This was actually something that is confirmed in the National Academy of Sciences report, the NAS review of the science in the FBI's anthrax case from their 2011 report. This is an actual quote from their report. It says, finally, in the new materials provided to the committee, it is noted that PCR analysis was performed on human remains from United 93 on 9 one that were identified as those of the hijackers. Analysis was performed at U.S. AMRID and at the AFIP for sequence diagnostic of B. anthracis. One assay at U.S. Amrid gave positive results. But these results were believed by the FBI to be due to laboratory contamination. Wow, that is absolutely wild because the United 93 wreckage is apparently where the guy who went to the hospital for the leg lesion um, in the previous 9-11 episodes I was talking about. Uh, I mean, just odd. So they actually must have followed up on that leg lesion thing all the way to testing the human remains at that Pennsylvania basically smoking hole that had almost no wreckage whatsoever. And they claim they got a positive result, but then later said it was from contamination. Very interesting. So they were actually going as far as swabbing that. So to think that they wouldn't have, you know, made more of a big deal about the Boca Raton AMI building as a crime scene just does not make sense compared to what else they've done. And even though in their executive summary, they almost completely ignore Florida they did make an attempt the FBI did made an attempt to sort of revise history and act like it was a really important crime scene and kind of update their approach later on in 2002 and I'm going to go into that in a little bit and it's not just that they swab for anthrax spores apparently in the belongings of some of the 9-11 hijackers and even in their remains which I don't even know how they were able to identify their remains in the debris but this comes from the justice department's amerithrax investigative summary report from i believe it's from 2009 uh it's a pdf file which we're also going to provide for you but they have basically what they call the investigation prior to the scientific conclusions in 2007 they talk about the very early stages of the fbi's role in forensically investigating the anthrax And it says it took them nearly a year before the FBI identified the location from which the lethal anthrax letters were mailed. It says that even though they contained a Trenton, New Jersey postmark, investigators learned that 48 post offices and 625 street mail collection boxes fed into the Trenton mail processing facility. Each one of those mailboxes had to be swabbed for the presence of anthrax contamination to identify the specific box from which the letters originated. Let me say that again. The FBI actually swabbed over 625 different mailboxes in the year following 9-11. They went through this due diligence to find the origin point of the letter in New Jersey, but did nothing of the sort in Florida, apparently. Why not? If they were looking through the hijackers' remains and their personal property for anthrax spores, why didn't they look through the AMI building for traces that someone walked in a letter or delivered anthrax there? Even this story about the supposed Jennifer Lopez letter that Robert Stevens looked up at close and inhaled from, there's really no evidence to suggest yet that I've seen, except for what I said as an aside, Robert Graysmith mentions in his book, That the letter originally was sent to David Pecker, if it was sent to AMI, how do we know it wasn't walked in? Apparently, the letter was actually addressed to the Inquirer and not AMI, according to some witnesses, which actually had moved by that time to a new building. Apparently, it was addressed to 600 East Coast Avenue, the old location of the Inquirer building, and it was rerouted to 5401 Broken Sound Boulevard. But regardless, some kind of misidentification of rerouting, if this was the origin point for the anthrax infection in the AMI building, could be faked as well. Now, just to go over some of the things I just said in case you're lost, I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you, but we're focusing on some specific areas. We focused on one anomaly that the FBI admits. The murder of Kathy Nguyen that happened earlier on that throws a wrench, I think, in a large aspect of the anthrax investigation. The FBI cares to only mention her name twice and their basically final report where they are alleging Bruce Ivins kills her with no evidence. And we're also now moving on to another anomaly, the Florida crime scene a crime scene that the FBI also chooses to largely omit from their final investigative summary of their anthrax investigation. And they also have no explanation for or forensic evidence to suggest that Bruce Ivan sent the letter to the AMI building in Florida. And in fact, the FBI actually seemed to be embarrassed or ashamed that they didn't have access to the AMI building as an actual crime scene and that the CDC just sort of had complete control over it. But I guess what's key here for me is that in the executive investigative summary by the FBI, they don't even mention doing spore swabbing like they did for these 600-plus mailboxes around New Jersey. Why not? And just as an aside, Lori Kirchner, my wife... Brought up a good point while I was bouncing some of my research off of her. What do they mean by 600-plus mailboxes? Do they mean individual private mailboxes? I mean, if so, that's actually shockingly little. Um, The fact that they don't specify what they mean by mailboxes is also a little bit curious. And I haven't seen a document yet, and if anyone has seen one out there, and if anyone knows of any breakdown of this out there, please send it to me. But does this mean that they swabbed individual PO boxes in post offices? If so, I would say there's at least 500 P.O. boxes in most large post offices. So I think it's safe to say that they're keeping this intentionally vague in the executive summary on purpose. This is the most expensive FBI investigation in history. And I think they want this number of 600 to seem impressive. But in actuality, it isn't. If you just sit and think about 600 mailboxes, it's really not that many. 600 post offices maybe would be impressive but 600 mailboxes just looking at my own address on google maps and when i type it in in the default zoom setting to me it looks like there's about 300 mailboxes in just my surrounding neighborhood so 600 mailboxes is a pretty small area if they're able to trace the spores to even mail sorters in connecticut how did they lose track of the Florida letters this easily? I mean, the CDC was involved in some of the spore tracing too. Why couldn't they find a connection between these New Jersey letters or this this postal hub that apparently the real anthrax letters came from and any connection point in Florida? Just because the CDC was there ruining a forensic crime scene, like for potential fingerprints or... Forensic evidence of someone that might have walked in something and planted anthrax there. The CDC's job was similar to the FBI in the sense that they were still swabbing and trying to trace the origin points of anthrax. The FBI only went in later to follow up to sort of hone in on their criminal investigation itself in places like New Jersey. But I say it's notable in the investigative summary why they don't mention that they swabbed in Florida, this is only mentioned in a CDC report that came out that they swabbed in Florida. But I think the reason why it's important that they don't mention the FBI investigative summary, and keep in mind, they only mentioned Florida like seven or eight times in the entire report. Again, they're charging Bruce Ivins with Robert Stevens' murder, but established zero connection. They don't even bother to. But we know that they did swab, and we know that they did go back sometime. In the fall of 2002 and went back to the ami building basically trying to lock it down as a forensic crime scene so that they could re-swab and collect potential other forensic evidence and how do we know this because this was actually written about in robert graysmith's book amerithrax the hunt for the anthrax killer now again this is not a book i would recommend in terms of its politics some of the politics and the defenses and the apologies he makes for the bush administration frankly disgust me and really baffle me for someone who is so hooked on the zodiac story but i'm going to read to you a few really key passages from his book because this is the first time that i'm hearing about this but the information i'm going to present to you makes it seem much much worse what the fbi acquiesced to and allowed and seemingly took part in to just blow the entire crime scene, essentially at AMI. I mean, by this time you would think they had blown it, right? By not even really treating it like a crime scene to begin with. But there's a book by a Washington Post writer named Marilyn Thompson that's surprisingly good called The Killer Strain Anthrax and a Government Exposed, and it was published in 2003. Actually, in a way, some of these earlier iteration anthrax books that were published back in 2003, including Graysmiths, are more interesting because they show what the story was like before it got revived and revives over time. This has a tie-in to the St. Petersburg letters, apparently. And in Marilyn Thompson's case, she says that the FBI was actually so intrigued by the Florida connections to the anthrax death of Robert Stevens and the two hoax letters mailed from St. Petersburg in October 2001 that FBI agents then decided during the summer of 2002 to sift several times through Stephen Hatfield's Florida shed. They carted away bags of materials, although agents would not disclose their contents. So what's interesting is that around this same time, is apparently when the FBI is back in Florida fucking around. So what else did they do when they came back to Florida, apparently on the impetus of their theory based on the St. Petersburg hoax letters? I mentioned this on the last podcast, but I don't think this could be emphasized enough. This is evidence we actually have from a book that the FBI was actually looking at the St. Petersburg hoax letters as part of the anthrax case. And that might have even had something to do with why they were going after Hatfield. But it also seemed to have something to do with why they were back in Florida in 2002. Without getting sidetracked just really quickly, Marilyn Thompson herself for the Washington Post, she was actually going around right, you know, after her book came out, sort of going on a little book tour on C-SPAN, on uh, what else was it, NBC Nightly News, and in the Washington Post magazine after her book came out. And Marilyn Thompson actually said this in the Washington Post magazine interview when the book came out. She said, I believe that the FBI has thought for some time that the commission of this crime involved more than one person. It is likely that an accomplice or accomplices helped mail the letters from their scattered locations. If you recall, a few bore a St. Petersburg postmark. Hoax letters from other locations are believed to be involved. So there's Marilyn Thompson right there saying another thing that she really actually doesn't say in her book, that at the time she was writing her book, the internal belief among FBI agents was that this was a multi-person job coordinating people in Florida or people in New Jersey coordinating with each other that involved multiple people. Now, when you combine this with the quote from her book about how the St. Petersburg letters and the AMI building being infected combined is what made the FBI look towards Stephen Hatfill. it's interesting because what she's saying is that their going theory was that it was multiple people definitely involved working in coordination. And she also is saying that the FBI narrowed in on Hatfill, partly based on the St. Petersburg letters. Well, I've actually never heard this theory before that maybe the FBI actually believed that it was Hatfill plus other people. So that's very interesting if that's in essence what She's sane. But we're going to actually go back to her in a little bit. Bear with me. Robert Graysmith Smith says that on Monday, August 26, 2002, the FBI returned, planning to spend two weeks inside the plant. They decided they need another return look at the AMI building. And this was August 26, 2002, when they decided this. They believed evidence existed somewhere within AMI. Keep in mind, this is almost a year after the attacks. Notified the Palm Beach County Health Department that they planned to enter the quarantine building. By this time, the building was completely quarantined still. No employees were working inside. This is where it gets interesting. David Pecker, the CEO of American Media Inc., the friend of Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, had refused them entry until his company received a written proposal on what they intended to do. In late June, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, Police Chief Andrew Scott, and Boca Raton Mayor Stephen Abrams met with the FBI to discuss the toxic building. Florida Democrat Senator Bill Nelson wanted the feds to take over and decontaminate AMI. And I should also mention at this point that Bill Nelson, Florida Senator, He tried to propose legislation that was never actually put into law where the federal government would purchase the AMI building for a dollar or something like that and basically pay for the cleanup efforts. And why was Jeb Bush involved in this? Well, I mean, it's typical for a governor to interface with the FBI, but Jeb Bush actually had an odd sort of relationship or kind of gentlemanly agreement perhaps backdoor agreement even with david pecker of ami who is david pecker of ami why would he have some kind of backroom agreement with this random guy who's part of american media inc well david pecker was sort of almost trying to be like the rupert murdoch of the u.s except he wasn't nearly as rich as rupert murdoch david pecker's net worth something in the neighborhood of around 12 million dollars today although he did basically broker this gigantic media deal he started off as being the ceo of cbs magazine division in 1979 and by the time it reached the late 90s he had become the ceo of like the overall conglomerate cbs company called hashit filipashi media i think is how it's pronounced when Pecker was CEO of this company in the late 90s, he began producing Trump Style, something that he did for Trump. And he was also a close friend of Trump at this time. What's more important is he basically brokered this gigantic $350 million, unprecedented media deal where this company, American Media Inc., bought all of these tabloids at once. They bought The Star, they bought The National Enquirer, they bought The Globe, they bought Weekly World News, they bought Geez, there's so many different ones I'm, I'm forgetting to remember. The National Examiner, the Sun. They bought all these and it was a huge coup. And this guy who is really worth way less than someone like Rupert Murdoch in Europe and in the UK, who owns all these Murdoch associated tabloids, this guy, you know, acquired this incredible amount of leverage in a very short period of time merely by just being the CEO of this media conglomerate company. And he sort of used it to his advantage. He became sort of the sleazy deal-making guy and jeb bush in the late 90s early 2000s was known to have been having extramarital affairs and even though jeb bush's kids were being savaged at times in tabloids but jeb bush himself was never being talked about for these extramarital affairs in the tabloids and that was unusual because david pecker you know would typically be no holds barred and you know by the early 2000s david pecker had acquired all these tabloids essentially And Jeb Bush, you know, has some really odd, crooked connections too. Daniel Hopsicker's research goes into this to a certain extent. He does have a history in Florida with his own family, with odd connections to the Iran-Contra group of people, drug trafficking, even some human trafficking, prostitution stuff. I mean, there's a lot of weird, dirty connections with Jeb, believe it or not. I mean, he seems like this squeaky clean guy. I mean, he is the son, after all, of George H.W. Bush, so you know, his ties to Huffman Aviation, promoting Rudy Decker's airline and all that kind of stuff. It's weird. So the fact that he's in the mix, you know, and is there sort of technically a governor would maybe do something like that, but he's also there, I think, to sort of help David Pecker leverage what he's about to do against the FBI. When they've come in with this fairly simple request, we just want to come in and search this building that's been quarantined for over a year you know, to see if we can glean any new clues from the anthrax murders, the crime scene. And the FBI just started, you know, going into autopilot mode and prepping their operation to go in there, even making some public announcements about doing so. The FBI, working with the U.S. Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which is a unit of the CDC, had actually prepared special newly designed disposable chemical suits with air masks and latex boots for detectives to wear inside AMI on this return visit to the building. And this is an actual official statement by the FBI agent, one of the special agents in charge of the Miami division, says Robert Graysmith. Unlike other sites where anthrax hit in 2001, this is a site where no letter has been found. No delivery vehicle has been found. All of a sudden there was anthrax in that building. There must be a vehicle that introduced anthrax into that place. Why was there no trail of spores leading out of the building? This is where it gets kind of really political, but I'm just going to read to you some of these details. AMI had tentatively agreed to the new search when the FBI introduced its plan in a meeting at the tabloid's new offices. The details and logistics had been worked out and finalized a few days before the search. One day in advance, AMI saw a rough draft of the search warrant. An earlier version had authorized the seizure of business records, computer files, or other papers that might explain the motive, method, or intent. AMI was heavily lawyered by Williams and Connolly, a powerful Washington firm, to defend its legal rights and protect against libel suits. Its confidential informants had to be kept confidential. It is not our desire or intention, said U.S. Attorney Kenneth Cole, to remove any documents, business records, or other objects from the AMI building that may compromise your journalistic sources. If at that time you feel that any items taken during the search exceed the scope of the search warrant or the limitations imposed by this letter, you may contact me directly, and I am confident that we will be able to resolve the matter to the satisfaction of AMI. Pecker got his anti-Snoop pledge in writing a modification of the search warrant that forbade the FBI to snoop through reporters' private files or remove notes or other unpublished material from the building. Computers are off-limits, he said. The FBI wanted access to AMI's back issues, bound volumes for the National Enquirer, National Examiner, Sun, Weekly World News. Our desire is to review back issues to determine whether they to determine whether any past article published by AMI may be relevant to the motive for the anthrax mailings. The AMI legal team finally decided that the FBI agents could enter, but only to search for 14 days. Apparently, the EPA was involved in taking some of these spores originally, says Graysmith. And even though this building was already fully quarantined and not occupied by anyone, David Pecker had somehow gotten the U S justice department to agree that if he had any problem with them taking any type of files out like any folders of anything that they basically would say, that's fine. You can keep it. So this level of trust they have in CEO, David Pecker, um, when they need to go back there and treat this like a forensic crime scene is, is quite odd. It's severely limited. You know, if one of their intentions was to go back and search all the back issues to see if they could find a motive for the killing, um that's severely limiting too i mean what what kind of back issue stuff wouldn't they let them look at you know what was whether was, was there any other potential motives in there that david pecker uh wanted to hide for other celebrities because he was running basically a blackmail scheme i mean this guy is really crooked so it's really fucking very fucking suspicious and also i don't think we can rule out the fact that david pecker you know had some kind of role in all of this either i mean he is personally friends with as far as i understand rudy giuliani and some of these other really crooked motherfuckers it'd be great to be able to actually see this document that the fbi ridiculously signed off on allowing pecker to have power over them like this but i guess the most innocent explanation here for why pecker was so guarded even though you know in the room with the fbi and in the Documents he allegedly claimed journalistic integrity for his employees. The FBI not digging through stuff. But I would say the most innocent explanation from my point of view is that Pecker wanted to protect his catch-and-kill operation files from getting into the hands of law enforcement. And this is something that Gumby for Christ has actually done a lot more research on than I have. David Pecker inherited the National Enquirer's catch-and-kill blackmail racket where stories were regularly exclusively purchased for the purpose of burying them, not running them. And an unknown amount of celebrities and powerful people were now under Pecker's protection, essentially, because Pecker inherited the Inquirer's catch-and-kill system. So were these files being kept at the AMI building? That's actually not clear to me. They may have been in a totally different location. They may have been in the AMI building. But we do know that photo archives... Belonging to the original National Enquirer, going back over 30 years, were now located at the AMI building. But could this guy just be a real shrewd son of a bitch who knows how to make deals and shove people around with his, you know, maybe Napoleon complex, a 12 million dollar net worth guy, but control of a media empire? Could it just be that him just acting overly sensitive just for his own personal reasons, or even maybe to protect some of these celebrities? who he was holding maybe even blackmail information on. I mean, all that's possible. That could be his political motivations for being so aggressive with the FBI and basically turning them into total cucks and, and getting them to acquiesce like this, which is pretty incredible. I think it's actually more than that. I mean, there, there does seem to be a much deeper relationship between David Pecker and people like Jeb Bush. Um, there's a really good L.A. Mag article That goes into sort of his resentment actually that he had against Jed Bush for not paying for the remediation at the AMI building. So there was actually this expectation from David Pecker, according to this LA Mag article called the Hush Hush deal that made Arnold Schwarzenegger governor. It's, It's about Arnold, but it goes into basically how Pecker thought that Jeb Bush would gladly procure some kind of deal you know, he doesn't say it in this interview, but I'm sure that Pecker was probably like, well, your brother's the president. Why won't he help me pay for, you know, give me some money to help on this building that's now like unusable. Uh, It's totally quarantine, you know? So it does seem to be that David Pecker was, you know, kind of in bed with Jeb in the sense that they had this gentlemanly agreement. And maybe at the end, he regretted having that agreement with Jeb because Jeb never paid him any money for the AMI building or got him any state money for it. Um, and according, you know, David Pecker had this really big ego about it being an attack on America, American Media Inc. It was an American media company, you know. he would say. This is the actual quote. But David Pecker said that American was also the name of American Airlines. United Airlines may have been a symbol for the United States. I think this is an attack against America. The World Trade Center was attacked. The Pentagon was attacked. And American media was attacked. And I think this was the first bioterrorism attack in the United States. If you just look at the incredible coincidences, you cannot arrive at any other conclusion in my mind other than this is a bioterrorist attack. So that's David Pecker's comments about why he thought American Media Inc. specifically was targeted. A little egoistic of him, Little sounding neocon rah rah of him, he not only talks about how the anthrax attacks nearly tanked his whole business, and he had this sort of growing resentment against Jeb later on. He would pity himself and present himself as a victim to try to you know gain sympathy to basically get money to pay for the damages at the AMI building. He even filed multiple insurance policies and and fought and sued the insurance company. Um, it was called Traveler's Insurance. Pecker sued them. And in early 2004, it says, the company paid an undisclosed settlement to AMI, which reported an after-tax benefit of $7.6 million. So that comes a couple of years after where we are in this timeline right now. But I think what's so interesting about this is that Pecker was this really aggressive, shrewd guy. And he really did wield a lot of political power. And he did sort of you know, have this expectation that you know, hey man, like I'm the only one who lost somebody here. Like Jeb didn't lose anybody. The Bushes didn't lose anybody. He says, Jeb never came over to see me or my people. And I was the only one who lost somebody. So he's sort of like personalizing Stephen's death like like he really felt it. But, you know, it's almost like this sympathy card for him in this article, in essence. Um, but there's a lot of great stories in this article too about how he essentially got Arnold Schwarzenegger to win The governor's seat he cleared all the tabloids up for arnold so that there was no negative stories basically in any of them uh, so that arnold could have a total free pass and the tabloids actually helped smear some of his opponents in california david pecker actually acquired the joe welder media empire and and joe welder is the guy who actually brought arnold schwarzenegger over to the u.s schwarzenegger is sort of almost like the martha stewart of this media empire you know, he would be on all their magazine covers. So Pecker had this deep relationship with Schwarzenegger too. And actually there was a certain point where Schwarzenegger was making a salary, apparently simultaneously from David Pecker's AMI while he was in the governor's seat somehow. So that actually happened. And after this completely ludicrous cucked deal, the FBI signed on to, apparently the FBI was now swabbing the entire 67,000 Square foot building says Robert Graysmith in this 2002 return. Judy, or Hula, the spokesperson for the FBI field office in Miami, said, "Before, when we were there, we took samples. My understanding is that they, they want to be more thorough. Number one, we hope to do a very comprehensive, detailed assessment of the spore contamination throughout the entire building. Very detailed assessment with regard to the mailroom." Number three, we are looking for a dissemination device, such as a letter or letters, again, to generate new leads for the investigation. Now, there's a lot of stories that came out even around the same time that all this stuff was being completed. After their return, the FBI, it was reported in the Miami Herald in a headline, The Feds Still Stumped by Source of Anthrax and boca. Apparently, after swabbing the entire 62,000 square foot building, all they were able to really decipher is that they don't really even know if it came from a letter or not. They still don't know. Right before the September 10th, 2002 article, the Fed's still stumped by source of anthrax and boca. Robert Graysmith says in his book on September 3rd, seven days earlier before this article came out, the testing inside AMI confirmed that copier paper contaminated by the mail had spread spores to every copy machine on all three floors so if it spread to every copy machine then it pretty much would have spread to like every single person's cubicle I would imagine microscopic amounts that would make it virtually impossible to find an origin point but it's fascinating that there's insinuations here in 2002 that they're looking for things beyond letters. and that They let David Pecker have this kind of control. So Hector Pasquera, this FBI agent, I mean, he actually says, this is a site where no letter has been found, unlike other sites where anthrax hit in 2001. No delivery vehicle has been found. All of a sudden, there was anthrax in that building. There must be a vehicle that introduced anthrax into that place. Well, they already knew about Ernesto Blanco being the male guy. They already knew he got it, but yet they still didn't believe they had enough evidence to convincingly say that it came from a letter and they never revised this. So this is as far as we know, pretty much their last definitive statement on this crime scene in Florida. Remarkable. And because there is no definitive link or spore tracing going from the east coast of Florida in reality the FBI is just left empty-handed knowing that Stevens died from the same anthrax strain they're essentially treating the Florida AMI incident in terms of a forensic trail or useful evidence trail for their investigation as if it didn't happen at all or if it has no direct connection to the four letters they found It's almost like as if they treat the first real death in Florida the same as when the first hoax letter arrived in Florida. The question we need to keep asking is why did they not take this more seriously? Why did they try to come out a year later and try to be like, no, 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 we got to go back in there. We missed something. Uh, We don't understand how this is connected. In fact, we don't even know if it came from a letter. Maybe it came from another delivery method. And then after that, just poof, like a poof of smoke, gone, gone no explanation for what they additionally found. And essentially what we find out in the investigative summary is they found nothing. They found nothing. when I say found, I mean any significant evidence that led them in any direction or another. We do actually have the results of the AMI search in 2002. It's from the St. Augustine Times, although the link now is broken. I'm not able to pull it up, but I'll just read you the quote that I took. Luckily, I I captured the quote at the urls broken but um i don't know where the source of this come from but it says the fbi search operation began august 27th talking about the ami building and ended september 8th it was the first comprehensive search of the supermarkets tabloids publishing office according to court documents hundreds of letters 33 mail cart folders 12 mailroom shelves 11 mail slot vacuum samplings and 11 box tops collected throughout the mail room were seized from the building by investigators. They also took two vacuum samples and six carpet samples. So that's the only real paper trail we have about what they found. There's also an article on USPS's website still that talks about the six post offices in Florida that had traces of anthrax in them had all quote medically insignificant trace amounts that's unusual why were there so much collateral damage on the east coast but not hardly any in florida just in contained inside the ami building it's a little unusual i would say but i think to sum all this up the fbi never pushed hard to gain access to the ami building as a real crime scene ever even when they returned And it even says this was the first comprehensive search in August, 2002. This is almost a year after the attacks. Even after they returned, they acquiesced to this totally nonsensical deal to this guy, David Pecker, who claimed, oh, yeah, you can only take what I allow you to take. So they really never had access unfettered to a full crime scene, forensic crime scene investigation. Unbelievable. And why are they always just parading around these four letters because they have pictures of them? The one to the New York Post, the one to Tom Brokaw, the one to Tom Daschle, and the one to Patrick Leahy. Why don't they also mention as an aside, fifth letter not found, image not available or something like that. It's almost like they don't want you to remember that there was a fifth letter because it makes their investigation look more tight. It makes it look more narrow. It makes the frame look narrower. And the FBI also didn't take very seriously the Howard Troxler hoax letter either. They hardly took it seriously at all. They let the local health department and police and fire department deal with that. Wouldn't they just, because of precaution, just assume it was part of the same thing? I think we need to start throwing this other assumption or idea out. The idea that the anthrax attacks were conducted by one person. I think we have to completely throw that theory out. Based on what we've seen and the supposed copycat or hoax letters, some of these hoax letters were not copycats. And some of them were sent from locations that would have been impossible for Bruce Ivins or really any single person to do, I believe. Unless we're to believe this wild, wild idea that he was as dedicated as the Unabomber, if not more so, to drive multiple times to Florida to go multiple times to New Jersey to send letters because at this point I am operating on the theory that these St Petersburg hoax letters the four of them there was actually four letters sent from St Petersburg were done in coordination with whoever was sending the letters from New Jersey and it's not just Barbara Hatch Rosenberg's excellent timeline that really proves this I think the going theory at the time is even echoed by Marilyn Thompson and Robert Graysmith in both of their anthrax books that were, as I said, early iterations in the narrative, which I think are valuable to see what the narrative was generally before it got revised. And in Robert Graysmith's book and Marilyn Thompson's book, they both place an extreme amount of importance on these St. Petersburg letters, even though they're not really mentioned that much in the books. They're still a pivotal piece of evidence. They see it as a piece in th- of the case. And according to them, so did the FBI. Here's what Gravesmith says about the St. Petersburg letters. He said the envelopes were different sizes. If a marathrax had sent them too, then he had been in New Jersey on September 18th and in Florida two days later. The fact that the St. Petersburg mailing contained fake anthrax might only mean that a marathrax kept his supply in new jersey there's robert graysmith basically implying that it was one person which is pretty over the top but he is saying that they're connected that whoever sent the saint petersburg letters obviously sent the new jersey letters that's him admitting that in his 2003 book amerithrax the hunt for the anthrax killer in an interview on nbc nightly news marilyn thompson says and this is actually all the way in 2008 in this interview that I'm reading from you now. So when the guy on NBC asks her if if she buys the Ivans' verdict, and she says, I'm not buying it. The FBI from the beginning has been working under the theory that this crime could not have been accomplished by a single individual because of the weird timing and circumstances of how the letters showed up in different states. Well, she's specifically talking about the St. Petersburg hoax letters and how they were timed versus the real letters. And then the reporter Amy Robach asks her, I mean, you've been following this case from the beginning. How would you grade the FBI's performance? Are you satisfied with where they are now in this investigation? And she says, no, I think I'm one of the many journalists who become increasingly skeptical of the Bureau over the years. And we're watching this with great interest. And if you don't just want to take my word for it, that Marilyn Thompson, this sort of insider access journalist who was basically echoing what she believed to be the FBI's internal theory at the time that this was a multi-person team effort, but she does in these interviews. and here's a clip actually from C-Span where a C-Span caller calls in where she's promoting her book and asks Marilyn Thompson what she thinks of this idea on a conspiracy behind anthrax. that California, you're next. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Um, w- what about the conspiracy? Conspiracy uh, thoughts on this anthrax issue. This seems to me to be something that could only be done as a teamwork type of thing. It was pointed out that the head of a department there let security lax in one place that had some of that anthrax. And the whole department uh, chain of command was changed. And other people had access to that anthrax. Uh, at that time. What about the, a conspiracy theory to this? Well, I think the FBI has been on that very question for some time. They they do not believe that this could have been a one-man operation, uh, and that in fact whoever pulled it off had at least one, possibly more, accomplices, just because the geography of the crime was so scattered. There were letters dropped into mailboxes in St. Petersburg, Florida that were suspicious. And then the critical letters uh, to Senator Daschle and Senator Leahy were mailed from, uh, of all places, a a postal box in Princeton, New Jersey, right across the street from the main campus. Um, They believe that geographically there had to be some other people involved. And generally speaking, I agree with this theory that the FBI had and that Marilyn Thompson has. That whoever did this, let's say the person or peoples in charge, had to have had one, at least one, accomplice. Maybe two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six, maybe seven, maybe eight accomplices, maybe nine, maybe ten. We really honestly don't know. So at one time, it did seem like the FBI was actually on the right track of investigating this. Because with the inclusion of these other letters, as Marilyn Thompson said geographically would not make sense for it to be one person i don't think it was the same people i think it was people perhaps in coordination or perhaps even taking orders from a ringleader and not knowing what their individual role was some kind of compartmentalized thing the other theory i think we need to question and throw out is this sort of theory that's kind of has parallels to the covid era the covid lab leak conspiracy era this idea that it was a scientist or biologist or you know a scientist who had a bone to pick you know a scientist or a sophisticated lab had to be behind making the anthrax itself that's undeniable there was a weaponized element to it a regular person can't just make anthrax spores and weaponize them like that you need sophisticated knowledge and equipment to do it but this theory that the person who did it who actually like, sent the anthrax, was a biologist or a scientist motivated by some kind of mad scientist or godlike egomania, like some kind of disgruntled killer complex, it feels increasingly cartoonish to me and almost like a book trope. This is how the FBI managed to go after Stephen Hadfield. They had a lot of people out there sort of spreading this idea that, well, the FBI is looking at you know, the top anthrax scientists in the country because they're some of the only people that could have been sophisticated enough to do this. But shouldn't we question that frame in and of itself? If this was, let's say, a sophisticated op, let's say the 2001 anthrax attacks was done as some kind of sophisticated operation by a group of people. Let's just say that's what it was. If that's what it was, then they probably would want it to point to a small pool of scientists that wasn't related to the people who actually did it they maybe even would want to frame or to throw people off to the trail to make it seem like it could have only been these these sort of devious mad scientist types who already had a bunch of stuff out there like hatfield did warning about anthrax being sent through the mail or like canalabic so i think those theories we all need to throw out and i'll just go over them all again that the infections and deaths from anthrax were all unintended collateral damage or just collateral damage by the anthrax perpetrator. We need to throw that out. There's no reason to think that that's what happened. We need to throw out this idea that the mail sorters and simply the mail carrying is what cross-contaminated all these letters and created the anthrax spores all across the country that we saw, including the supposedly random people that got infected. We need to throw out the magic mail sorter theory. And we need to remember that the magic mail sorter theory in a way was largely publicized by Judith Miller in her now very hot continuing New York Times series as she was the victim of an anthrax hoax letter. And I believe that this theory was sort of inserted into the mix, not just by CDC and other health officials and FBI officials, but it might have even been added into the mix politically by someone else who just wanted to confuse people and just throw independent investigators off the trail more. We need to throw out this idea that the anthrax found came from letters. We don't know if some of the anthrax that was also found was planted or placed there in person or released in person by somebody. We also don't know if there was a letter that was actually maybe even hand-delivered, walked into the office of Boca Raton's AMI building's mailroom and made to look like a stamped letter. Because there is no evidence of the letter. We don't have it. So this idea that the anthrax even came from you know, letters at all, I think we need to question that it all came from there, first of all. There could be Additional sources of anthrax. There could also be letters that were not found that were not made to look threatening, totally unknown letters that were delivered. And there could also be letters that were hand delivered to make appear as if they came through the US postal system. Because if a letter was not found, I don't think we can lean on the theory that, well, yeah, you know, they had an anthrax environmental sample at this post office next door and then this one sort of nearby. So we sort of vaguely know that it probably came from this mail source. No, because often in a lot of mailrooms, what they do is the USPS people will drop off like plastic crates and sometimes they'll even recycle them. They'll switch them out from their truck. They'll bring out the mail in a plastic crate. They'll even leave it there and sometimes let the mailroom employee like use it and then give it back to the postman the next day to refill it up. So in some instances, you really can't say if those crates that are used sometimes in large mail drop-offs are just basically bringing spores from a workplace back to a mail truck and then back to a postal hub. So conceivably, in theory, someone could have walked a letter into the AMI building's mail room and made it look like it was sent with a postal meter, like a metered stamp letter, threw it in the mix of mail pile in one of those plastic USPS crates. And then when the postman came the next day to take back the crate to refill it, he brought it into the truck, filled it up, touched it, shuffled around potential anthrax spores and got anthrax spores in his truck and took them back to his mail hub. So what the CDC is saying in their documents, the swabbing, the detection, There's nothing to say that the opposite did not happen. So my just totally speculative theory that I'm throwing out right here is that we don't know if this letter that was sent to AMI was hand-delivered or not. And we don't know if the spore trail that the FBI and EPA and CDC collected that leads back to Ernesto Blanco's mail truck back to the post office didn't come from AMI into the truck to the post office because of what I was just telling you about the way that these mailrooms distribute these shared crates. Robert Graysmith says that the Spores trailed Blanco's route as he made his regular rounds from the first floor mailroom, upstairs, and elevators to dozens upon dozens of desks and cabinets. What if it was the other way around? What if he trailed spores back down to the mail truck because of a quote-unquote contemporaneous anthrax outbreak in the building is how the FBI describes what happened at AMI. But I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent from this point because this is important. We do know for sure and for some reason that the FBI, when they returned in August 2002 to the AMI building, tried taking swab samples of the entire building this time every single floor, everywhere, not just looking in the mail areas. Why exactly? I mean, to me, that seems to imply that the FBI also thought that they could find clues beyond letters. And this one is more of a hunch of mine just based on deductive reasoning, based on all the source material that I have. The other ones I backed up to you with evidence. But this theory of mine that the FBI went back in 2002 To search for some other kind of evidence in the AMI building primarily and not spore trails, to me, just lines up with the available evidence. Because let's just use logic here. If they're going back, as they say, to see if they had missed a letter that they didn't find, why do they have to collect so many anthrax spores in the building to do that? That doesn't really make sense. Wouldn't they just be able to scour every square inch of the building? Why would they need a swab to find the letter? Couldn't they scour every square inch of the building to make sure that the letter hadn't fallen behind a cabinet or slipped under a desk leg or just fallen behind something or was just completely obscured? Well, I guess part of the reason they couldn't do that maybe was because Pecker, David Pecker, was able to tell them what they could and could not look through. For all they knew, one of the cabinets Pecker wouldn't let them touch was sitting on top of the letter. So the entire premise makes no sense. So I think obviously they were there for another reason. I think we can safely say that. But what were they there for? What specific files maybe were they there for? The lack of infections outside the AMI building, even if there was cross-contamination spore trails and spores found in some of these post offices, is notable. And I don't think it can be ignored because all these other letter attacks resulted in cross-contamination infection, supposedly, at all these postal facilities. Why didn't anybody get infected when this letter was on its way to AMI, except for once it entered the building? And they seem to just casually brush over and really even omit this story or this anecdote you would hear that was actually published in the National Enquirer about how Stevens. Apparently looked at this jennifer lopez stalker letter that had white powder in it they omit that from their narrative the fbi never talks about it it doesn't appear in the executive summary of theirs except for only one time and you could search for it yourself and this is their quote from the report this is the only time they mention how robert stevens actually died what they've figured out what they've decided to say they know in their final report It appears that at least one more envelope was sent to AMI, located in Boca Raton. A contemporaneous anthrax outbreak occurred in that facility, as well as contamination at the postal facilities serving AMI. However, no envelope was ever recovered from AMI. That's it. The FBI doesn't even decide to mention as an aside the story about Stevens and any of the witness accounts saying that he looked at some mysterious letter why not why don't they mention that that's kind of interesting and what's also funny is i found this while doing research for this podcast on wikipedia for the amerithrax attacks whichever gatekeeper camps out on that wikipedia page like whatever editor you know make sure he's he's got the right shit on there I kind of loathe Wikipedia editors for the most part. I think that most of them are sort of like gatekeeper-ish establishment thought type people. Oddly enough, that's how most of it turns out to be. I mean, I actually don't look at this Wikipedia page at all, hardly at all for the attacks. So I went to look a little bit at it, and obviously they want to push the Bruce Ivins angle. But what's fascinating is the story about Stevens, Robert Stevens, the first anthrax victim who died, looking at this letter that the National Enquirer decided to print in their own publication saying this would happen to one of our employees. On the Wikipedia page itself, it says this is actually a false lead. It's under the category false lead. I don't know why they decided to put it under false lead, but to me that's intriguing. And I wonder if there's some other official document out there that that completely knocks down the story about Robert Stevens looking at this letter. So again, what I'm saying is the FBI does not really know how Robert Stevens got anthrax, and neither do we. And the FBI was in no hurry at all to really figure it out, even though they were in this hurry to swab the hijackers' remains and apparently their personal belongings at their places of residence for anthrax. But here's what we know 100% for sure about the 2001 anthrax attacks, that we know 100% for sure. We know... Confirmed that five people died from inhalation anthrax from October 5th, 2001 to late November 2001. We know that the National Academy of Sciences knocked down the FBI's only DNA forensic evidence for linking their suspect to the murder. So the DNA evidence that the FBI has is essentially worthless, and only their circumstantial case really remains. And this is also another interesting finding from the FBI's Justice Department executive summary is they they say that whoever did these anthrax mail-outs would have definitely had to have a prophylactic anthrax preventative drug running through their system already. Either an anthrax vaccine specifically or something like Cipro because transferring the spores into the letters from powder form, even if you were wearing protective equipment it would still be very risky and you could still easily infect yourself secondly transporting the letters from a plastic bag into a mailbox would also result in contaminating the person and at that point if they were traveling somewhere to or if a groups of people were traveling places to send these letters out in a mailbox or from different mailboxes they likely wouldn't have been traveling wearing hazmat protection so just merely taking an envelope like this out of plastic bag and into the mailbox the FBI is claiming would have resulted in infecting the perpetrator so that the perpetrator must have been on some kind of prophylactic. We know that no matching spores to the murder weapon were found on Bruce Ivan's personal items, his lab station, his home, his vehicle, or his clothing. This means that if he was responsible for these attacks and he was working with this much weaponized anthrax, then he was immaculate and covering up his trail, and basically they found no traces anywhere in his home or on his personal items. There were also no spores found anywhere near some of the victims or their places of work or places they went, specifically of Adalie Lundgren, 94-year-old woman from Connecticut, or Kathy Nguyen, 61-year-old hospital worker in Manhattan. Her early autopsy and medical results showed she received what looks like a massive up-close dose of inhaled anthrax, and we know from early reports and their official statements that the FBI and CDC were even looking at an in-person contact with the murderer as a cause for her death at one time. There is no physical video or photographic evidence showing Bruce Ivins leaving his home in Maryland in the middle of the night, the FBI claims, to take Two different seven hour round trips to Princeton, New Jersey to send out anthrax envelopes. There's absolutely no physical evidence or forensic evidence or paper trail or anything showing that Bruce Ivins did this. This is a speculative theory that the FBI comes up with to explain well, we think he's the killer, and we know that these letters were sent from a mailbox in Princeton, New Jersey. Why would he take this seven-hour round trip all the way to Princeton, New Jersey? Well, they claim it's because of a sorority he was obsessed with that had a sorority house near a mailbox where the anthrax letters were sent from. That's what they claim. Well, strangely, there was also one of these sorority locations in Washington, D.C., which is actually much closer to Bruce Ivan's house in Maryland. Why would he take a four-hour drive to Princeton, New Jersey, you know, because he was so obsessed with the sorority, he wanted to throw people off the trail, but he also couldn't think of another location to go to other than a place near a sorority he was obsessed with, but he still went out of his way to go to a different branch of that particular sorority. This is essentially, this is what they're saying that he did. So a man was smart enough to clean any trace of any spores from these anthrax letters on his home or personal property made the slip up of going to a mailbox four and a half hours out of the way that tipped off fbi investigators of the identity of the killer why didn't he just go to the one next to his house then if it was so obvious and since i don't know how to find it so i can't say for sure if there isn't or is any evidence of ivan's making two 29-hour round trips to st petersburg florida from Frederick, Maryland, to send out these clearly coordinated hoax and real letters. But I can say for sure that the FBI doesn't mention St. Petersburg letters in their report. They never tried to link Ivins to those letters, at least not publicly. And if they tried logistically in their own internal investigation, it just wouldn't have worked for where he was located because of all the missing time. They can barely account for his missing time in New Jersey, or where they say he was in New Jersey. But what we do know for sure, oddly, is just based on a quote from an obscure anthrax book, we know for sure that the FBI used the St. Petersburg hoax letters in some fashion to guide their investigation towards Stephen Hatfield. And that's very fascinating. The FBI and the CDC, they also admit that this mailbox tracing i mean it's only so reliable so this idea that they can know for sure that this is where the anthrax came from this is the origin point of it they admit that they really don't know so they're already sort of working on a loose theory to begin with it could have been cross-contamination that got into a box that came from somewhere else in fact that's their whole working theory for how all these different random people got murdered so but i guess part of the point here is that the fbi and their investigative summary wants to show that they did all this due diligence of swabbing over 600 mailboxes if that's really convincing evidence to them well they omit an entire crime scene in terms of where they collected some of that evidence so it's really not that important to them evidently And they really act like they had their dicks in the wind, like a bunch of helpless fucking SOBs in their own investigative summary, which is hilarious. Some real cuckoldry going on here. Um, They say, this is another part where they mention Stevens. It's really one of the only parts. They barely mention Robert Stevens in Florida in this report. They only mention it sort of narratively, not in sort of a forensic way or any specific way to connect it to this other string of murders. They say by Monday, October 15th, the FBI officially opened their joint investigation. And keep in mind, this is literally 10 days after the confirmed inhalation anthrax death of Robert Stevens. Within 24 hours, scientists assisting the task force confirmed that the anthrax powder in the letters to Senator Daschle in the New York Post matched the same strain of anthrax found in the clinical isolates of bacteria removed from Mr. Stevens' blood thereby linking the three events in Florida, New York, and Washington, D.C. However, many questions remained unanswered. Investigators did not know whether an anthrax letter had passed through AMI in Florida or how many other letters might have been sent. They did not know the location from which the letters had been mailed, nor did investigators at that time have any idea whether the letters were part of a state-sponsored act of terrorism the work of an international terrorist organization or a domestic based group or were isolated acts i mean you got to be fucking kidding me 10 days after this guy dies from inhalation anthrax they did not know whether anthrax letter had passed through ami in florida whether they not interview anybody I, apparently not so that's how long they waited to talk to anybody to even figure this out or to see if this was a criminal act i mean virtually ignore florida only eight hits in the entire report on Florida. The only mention of swab testing in Florida comes up in the CDC reports and also some of this extraneous press reporting about the FBI going back there in 2002 and some stuff that the EPA did. But there's all this mention and bragging about the swab testing they did in New Jersey. And they include Kathy Nguyen and Robert Stevens in the overall timeline of the anthrax attacks, but they, I'm serious, you can look at the report yourself, they do not try in any serious way to link either of their deaths to the larger string of murders that they claim was done by Bruce Ivins. In fact, there is no specific connection between them, except for the strain of anthrax they died from, apparently. The FBI doesn't even try to say cross-contamination, or we know that it came from a letter. They do a very good job of just not talking about that in the case of Florida. So in essence, they omit both of these from the official narrative to make their case seem more airtight, even though on its face it barely is. It's just when you include these omissions and sort of them downplaying both of these simultaneously with that, it becomes even more obvious that they are stovepiping the evidence that we can see completely. And again, if spores were found in the mailbox, then why weren't they found on Bruce Ivins or his car or his home? Another thing we know for sure is that the anthrax used in the known letters was the AIM strain of varying grades, and that we know that the people who died from the anthrax also died from a similar strain of AIM strain. Other things that I think we can say definitively. We cannot say for sure where this anthrax was manufactured. We have to throw out, I think, you know, you you often hear a lot of people oversimplifying the counter-narrative to anthrax, saying that Fort Detrick, Maryland, you know, it came from Fort Detrick. That's where all the bioweapon, like, false flag stuff comes from. It's this, you know, place that everybody needs to be suspicious of. And In fact, that's even where maybe even COVID came from. I mean, obviously, it does seem as if this AIM stream was produced in a bioweapons lab of some kind, a U.S. one, but which one? How do we know it wasn't produced in a foreign lab on behalf of a U.S. actor? Other things we know for sure. The Bush administration, the Bush staff were given Cipro injections on the evening of 9-11 on Air Force One. Other things we know for sure is that the very first call put out to the FBI about a potential anthrax attack after 9-11, in which the FBI actually responded, but for some reason, again, didn't respond very urgently, was the Tom Brokaw letter, but not the real letter. It was the hoax letter. So I can say definitively right now that if you look at the timeline, the first time someone tried to get the FBI out for one of these letters, either from the St. Petersburg or New Jersey letters, initially came from a hoax letter and a person went to the hospital as a result of this hoax letter because they had already started getting cutaneous anthrax skin infection and they believed it came from the hoax letter but i think it was important to go through the things we know for sure and the things that i think we have to throw out and instead of operating on these premises i think we need to just question them on their face because if you don't think this was a lone nut, if you don't think this was a disgruntled scientist, if you don't think it was just a couple people working together to piggyback off the 9-11 attacks, maybe for their own agenda, then really, I think one of the only other ways to look at it was as some kind of sophisticated, potentially military intelligence operation, as over the top as that sounds. If you look at 9-11 from that frame, why would Anthrax be any different? And again, these are just all theories. I'm not saying that you have to buy into what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that we need to start examining it from this frame, I think. And we already know, we've been talking on these last three podcasts, that there is a sort of a sloppiness. There's an in-your-face nature to the way the DEA-identified Israeli art students behave, trying to attract attention to themselves, how Muhammad ought to behave, trying to attract attention to himself. Um these different things, they seem as if they are designed to attract attention and to create noise and to make sort of a red herring-like effect. So one thing I keep asking myself is, if those things were designed to create attention and to make noise, then what were they designed to distract away from? What else was happening on a more invisible or undetectable layer or a more hidden layer that we weren't meant to see and that we were meant to look away from? Now, in Christopher Ketchum's article that I read you um, from Salon, the section of, you know, he lays out a bunch of different theories about what it could possibly be. One of the darker ones was that it was meant to distract away from the 9-11 hijackers' activities. Some of this stuff was at least the Israeli art students' behavior was. That just still doesn't add up to me at all. But I did want to sort of leave you with a promised, you know, series of revelations that I don't want to say they're explosive or, you know, ridiculous or crazy or anything like that. I don't want to hype them up too much, but I did sort of tease out some things that I was going to give you. So at the end of this episode, I am going to, drop something about rudy giuliani and nine eleven that was quite shocking to me and i've never seen it reported before anywhere so i'm going to leave you with that tidbit at the very end but before that i am going to go through some reflections about my experience talking to howard troxler a recipient of one of these hoax st petersburg anthrax letters um And also sort of go through the map and maybe speculate a little bit about why he may have been targeted as a working theory. Just complete speculation if he was targeted, why he might have been using the map, the Interactive Florida attacks map. And then also after that, going into some more bizarre connections that just sort of reinforce some of the theories we already covered on the last few episodes using the Florida 2001 attacks map. So let's just talk a little bit more about the Howard Troxler hoax letter. Um, Howard Troxler is the St. Petersburg Times reporter that I spoke to on the phone. I just randomly decided to call him because, you know, I, I hadn't seen him follow up or write about this since it happened to him. I, by that point, believed that the handwriting matched up to the real anthrax letters from what i had seen and it was intriguing enough to me where i thought that it was worth speaking to him you know i reflected a little bit on the interview did i ask the right questions am i bad at doing these kinds of interviews to try to you know get people to feel comfortable and draw him out did he clam up even uh, at points in the interview and even towards the end because frankly i didn't say this in the last podcast but we were supposed to exchange phone numbers we were supposed to You know keep in touch with each other and by the end of the call i felt that i I don't know i mean this may be unfair to say but i felt like i kind of scared him off a little bit you know he had never seen this before as something where he was potentially maybe even a target uh for you know by the same killer that had actually killed people he just thought it was totally unrelated so maybe by the end of this call i had sort of convinced him of that possibility he was processing that and then realized he just didn't want to have anything to do with it And that's the most, you know, innocent explanation I'll give the phone call. You know, I might have just scared him off. He clammed up a little bit as a result because by the end of the call, he did not end up taking my number or email. And, um, you know, even though it was cordial, very polite, we talked on the phone for a good hour and a half. It just, I feel like I'd be pushing him and kind of bothering him at this point if I called him again. Um, It was a very sort of clear ending to to the exchange. I guess reflecting on that, it was that part was maybe a little disappointing where I was hoping that, you know, maybe I could find this random guy who had gotten targeted with an anthrax hoax letter that was curious enough about what had happened to him that he would want to sort of, you know, maybe this is very idealistic, but sort of join me in this effort and keep in touch and be open to me, like sending him information and, you know, maybe having his thoughts shared about what I was finding because talking to him on the phone, some of the conversation we had was that he was he was sort of assessing what the research that I had put together and found and giving me his honest opinions on it. Some of it he you know didn't agree with. The stuff he did agree with, I was surprised by. And again, maybe that's why I think the conversation made it might have ended the way it did. So I guess just from a you know a amateurish journalistic point of view, and I hate using the word journalist at all. It just, I just reflected on what I could maybe do better next time. And unless I'm going after someone who I think is like, you know, a bad person or I know they're connected to something bad or I feel that they are, I mean, I'm just calling, you know, Howard Troxler. He's basically, as far as I'm concerned, a victim of this. But I did find some weird things about his proximity um, and why he might have actually been targeted. Now's a good time to pull up the Florida 2001 attacks event map that you will have access to if you are a media roots radio subscriber or if you want access to this map some of the information i believe in it is a little too sensitive to put on social media to put fully publicly online um, but i will give it to you if you're seriously interested in helping with this research project and this research project basically just involved trying to find any connections, geographical connections or timeline overlap between any of these different things we've been talking about. Possibly find new leads in the Anthrax investigation or even maybe the 9-11 investigation or maybe even both simultaneously. But I want you to go to your Florida 2001 attacks event map and I want you to zero in on the address 490 First Avenue, south st petersburg and when you go there you're going to only click on the tab on the map that says amerithrax bioweapons you're going to unclick every other tab so make sure when you're zoomed into that st petersburg area and i want it to take up maybe i don't know 30% of your screen the st petersburg area of this map uh unclick all the other tabs a lot of other random tabs Unclick them all. I only want you to click on the Amerithrax tabs. Now what you're going to notice immediately on the map is you're going to notice a bunch of little biohazard signs, hotspots, and these are potential things or mailboxes that contact or came in contact with anthrax or fake anthrax in this case in St. Petersburg. Most of these are potential places in where the hoax letters were sent from St. Petersburg. Now there's probably actually even more boxes than this. These are the boxes in the closest proximity to the St. Petersburg Times, which is located at 491st Avenue. St. Petersburg Times received a hoax letter. Now the letter itself was postmarked from St. Petersburg. Now out of all the people targeted, now if these were done by the same killers or if it was part of the same operation and the handwriting was meant to look similar or is similar which is not a coincidence i don't think then was howard troxler targeted because it doesn't seem as if robert stevens was targeted there's really no evidence to suggest that he was other than the random connection to the fact that he actually worked on touching up the elvis coffin photo which is one of the most valuable photos that was Uh, Part of the lawsuit against David Rustin and Rudy Giuliani uh, during the Bio One cleanup effort of the AMI building. But just going back to these St. Petersburg hoax letters, we know they were sent from St. Petersburg. We know one of them was sent on the same day a hoax letter was sent to Judith Miller to a Mr. Howard Troxler, a local reporter for the St. Petersburg Times. Not a tabloid guy. It's not a tabloid like the ami building held this was a an actual real local paper howard troxler was a you know a serious local reporter but is there any characters whatsoever from our story or that have anything to do with anthrax or suspicious connections to 9-11 or anything like that new pearl harbor penac anything that have any proximity to the saint petersburg times just incidentally um, yeah, there actually is. There's one person uh, who owns two properties in Florida, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, nice, really nice looking properties, actually, if you if you check them out on the map here. Um, he actually lives in, uh, he has properties in two different buildings, 300 Beach Drive, St. Petersburg, Florida, and another in 400 beach drive st petersburg florida and that is paul wolfowitz of project for the new american century uh, the man who admitted on tape that he thought that all the wmd stuff was just a bunch of nonsense and the only thing that was really important to him was just the anthrax stuff Um, and that's kind of a bush administration official just admitting right there that that's really what it was all about you boil it all down it was all about sort of making all these connections to anthrax and using that as a leveraging tool to get us into iraq so i don't know it's a little bit you know could be total random coincidence that paul wolfowitz lives within a half mile from the st petersburg times or he has a really nice ass you know property right next door to each other about a half mile from the st petersburg times might not mean anything still interesting but any other weird connections of why howard troxler might have been targeted at all is there any other connection whatsoever were there any 9-11 hijackers uh, living near howard troxler no there weren't if you turn on the tabs um, you'll see that you know some of these troxler's properties these old listings of his properties got to zoom out a little bit from st petersburg now uh aren't next to uh any of the hijackers activities in fact There really is no hijacker activity in St. Petersburg really at all. Um, The closest thing is probably in Clearwater, Florida at the Sim Amusement Center, 802 Court Street, Clearwater, Florida. Uh, And that's pretty far away from St. Petersburg. Now, Howard Troxler has a bunch of old properties listed in public records. Um, I'm sure he's probably okay with me. You know, I'm not going to say these addresses on the podcast. This will be the place where I'll have you look at the map yourself. But I'm sure he has no problem with me listing some of these old properties, which he's no longer associated with in public records. But one other interesting connection that I did find uh, between an old Howard Troxler address and something just related to anthrax in general is his proximity to an actual Battelle lab location. Um, He lived in a property that is literally, if you measure it on the map, just a little over a thousand feet away from a Battelle lab he used to live. Um, And the address of this Battelle lab in Florida is 2909 W Bay to Bay Boulevard, Tampa, Florida. Now, if you look this up on the interactive map, you'll see what I mean about how just oddly close his location is to uh, this Battelle lab. Could be, again, complete coincidence, might not mean anything um it he might not have even actually have lived at this address during when the hoax letters happened but going on the theory that this was some part of some kind of operation and that maybe some of these people were indeed targeted i do think we have to take into account some of these overlapping connections and if there's anything more to them i'm not saying that paul wolfowitz had something to do with the hoax letter sent to howard troxler i'm not saying that even you know the anthrax that was sent out in the letters came from battel i'm not saying anything like that i am saying however that there could be something there and we should just keep an eye on it and wonder based on what i was saying earlier if these people were targeted specifically for reasons we know that judith miller uh you know that seems to be one of the most obvious ones actually in terms of why she was specifically targeted she was the bioweapons beat dc reporter aka you know spook stenographer. um i still don't really know what to make of her as a reporter i mean she seems more like some kind of plant than a reporter although that sounds very conspiratorial but we know why she was targeted as part of this operation if you want to call it that but if we're operating on that theory why was howard troxler targeted and these are two possible vague loose but i think connections that we should just keep in mind as to possibly why he was targeted now are there any other possible connections whatsoever to howard troxler and anything else having to do with all these overlapping things well let's see let's just check let's click on you know some of these black ops things um yeah i mean there's some stuff in florida there's that cia plane guy james k neff who i actually just added on the map you can check him out he's got some stuff in tampa nothing notable um not nothing with the israeli art students really in this area either well actually that's not true there is something not super far but that's just the dea tampa division office it's not an actual listed address for any of the art students themselves keep in mind so in general no i mean as far as howard troxler just that weird proximity to saint petersburg times and two very nice looking paul wolfowitz you know high-rise condominiums and an old howard troxler residence being next to or very very close to i should say a battel labs i haven't had the chance to look through all of howard troxler's old stories i didn't have a chance to pick his brain over Any old story that he could remember or recall where he might have written about anyone involved in the anthrax attacks, even peripherally, any officials, Stephen Hatfield, anybody didn't ring a bell for him. So it's possible that he was targeted based on something he wrote in the St. Petersburg Times. Maybe he wrote a nasty piece about Wolfowitz. Uh, Maybe Wolfowitz hated the St. Petersburg Times. That's obviously a total long shot theory, but that's all I got for Howard Troxler. But his proximity to a Battelle Labs is, I guess, interesting, for sure. But I did promise you some bigger revelations when it comes to the Florida 2001 Attacks event map that you can get access to if you are a Media Roots radio subscriber. I recommend you become a Media Roots radio subscriber just because, you know, if you support this kind of research and you appreciate the kind of work that we've been doing on these different investigations, then yeah, consider becoming a subscriber at uh, patreon.com slash media roots radio. And it got the, the plug out of the way in the actual podcast itself this time. If you go to your Florida 2001 attacks event map, I have some interesting things to show you. I want you to turn off all the tabs except for 9-11 hijackers. And I want you to go to a specific 9-11 hijacker tab here. So I only want you to have on the 9-11 hijacker tab, but I do want you to get ready to click on the Giuliani tab, but don't click it on yet. This is interesting. I want you to go to a tab on the 9-11 hijacker tab. It's an apartment complex at 8025 Southwest, 107th Avenue, Miami. You can also click view on Google Maps if you want to see how this apartment complex looks. Pop a street view down there. Turn around. Well, actually, no, it's behind a a wall, so you can't really see inside of it. But anyways, you can get a kind of a decent view of what it looks like. It looks like a nice complex, actually. um, Next to a nice neighborhood of houses in Miami. So here you have this apartment complex where 9-11 hijacker from the Hamburg cell, Marwan al Shehi, was living. 8025 Southwest, 107th Avenue, apartment 208. This is a 9-11 hijacker's Miami condo apartment. He also listed an address not too far away, about three and a half miles away. But this specific address of 9-11 hijacker Marwan al Shiri is interesting because when you click on the Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani tab on the Florida 2001 Attacks event map, you'll see something interesting happen if you're zoomed into this particular Miami 9-11 hijacker apartment. Why don't you zoom into it a lot? You zoom into it a lot. You might even, I mean, if you want to, you could even put on the base map as... You know, the satellite view. Okay. So what's going on here? So you have 9-11 hijacker living in one of these seven different buildings as part of the same apartment complex. I don't know how many units they each have in them. The condominium complex is called Horizons, or at least that's what it's called now. It's a pretty big complex. It's not clear how many units are in each one of these buildings, but what's notable here is this is a condominium complex. It's got swimming pools. It's got one, two, three really nice swimming pools from an aerial view. It's got one, two, three, four tennis courts. It's a nice complex. One of the 9-11 hijackers lived here. So these guys weren't living on the cheap, but this hijacker in particular was living at this nice condominium complex. What happens when you click on The Rudy Giuliani tab on this map when you're zoomed into it huh you notice that did you notice Rudy Giuliani's face pop up a mere 350 feet away from one of the 9-11 hijackers Miami Florida condominiums isn't that strange what's that about Well, let's click on that input on the map. You'll actually be able to find it in the search bar of the Florida 2001 attacks event map. If you type the following, if you type Giuliani X, this is actually the ex-wife of Rudy Giuliani named Donna Giuliani, who now goes by the name Donna Hanover. She first lists moving into this property in 1982 and continues to be listed as the owner, apparently. Seems a little macabre to be continuing to live in an apartment that is literally 350 feet away from one of the 9-11 hijackers, but, you know, whatever floats your boat. Who does she think she is? Edgelord, hack noise artist, Vatican Shadow, a.k.a. Dominic Furno. Rudy Giuliani's ex-wife, at the time of when 9-11 hijacker from the Hamburg cell was living in a Miami Beach condominium complex, Rudy Giuliani's wife, during that time period, was living in the same complex, in a building next door out of a seven-building complex. What are the chances of that, and what does that even mean, and why was that not ever reported in the press? How come that wasn't reported as, oh my God, were the terrorists stalking the mayor of New York and his family? Were they going to do an attack on America's mayor You know, as part of 9-11? I mean, I've never heard anything about this before. You would think that would be one way to spin it due to the proximity. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, the FBI or someone on the NYPD or on the anti-terrorism task force over there must have already known about this property that Giuliani had Giuliani's wife had in Miami and also was looking at a list of addresses of where the nine 11 hijackers were and saw this Florida address. And they kind of scratched their head and thought, wait a second, this is like the same address. Basically it literally is the same address, even though Giuliani's wife has an address that's technically on a different street. Well, actually, you know, fuck it. I'm just going to give out the address. I'm not going to give out the apartment number. The address is enough. They live on the same fucking street. 9-11 hijacker Marwan Al-Shiri. His address, 8025 Southwest, 107th Avenue, Miami. Apartment number 208. In a different building on the same street. Giuliani's ex-wife, 8035 Southwest, 107th Avenue, Miami, Florida. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. And if there's any chance that I'm wrong about this connection, it's possible I make mistakes. I made a mistake on the last podcast in terms of the time frame of when the hoax letters got sent out versus the real letters. I didn't realize there were two separate batches. So if you find out I'm wrong about this somehow, please, by all means, correct me, but I have double and triple and quadruple checked this, and I believe that I am very much correct. Now, with your Florida 2001 attacks event map still pulled up, I want going to zoom out a little bit. You can keep the Giuliani 9-11 hijackers tab together open if you would like. Just going to leave you with some other creepy and strange connections on the map. Are there any other... Israeli art students' connections to anything else that I found. Maybe. There does seem to be a strange connection if you look up some of the new inputs on the map that I found. Previewing for the next episode. Manafort. If you type Manafort into the search box, you find a bunch of Manafort-related addresses pop up. But which one do I actually want you to look at? Well, I want you to look at the two... Manafort addresses, one on Equestrian Way and one on Quarter Horse Trail. What do you see when you have that popped open when you zoom in on the Equestrian Way Manafort address when you also have the Israeli Art Student tab open? Well, you see something interesting. You see urban moving systems related individuals really, really close. Then a mile and a half to different Paul Manafort properties. Oh, did I not already tell you that Paul Manafort's family, Manafort Brothers Construction, was involved in the removal and cleanup of the debris of the World Trade Center crime scene? Oh, sorry if I forgot to tell you that. But yeah, there's a lot of Manafort inputs now on the map. And there also does seem to be somewhat of a notable pattern. You know, we've been led to believe by this DEA memo about the Israeli art students that the Israeli art students were following a trail of DEA lab technicians and scientists from the DEA, that that was part of what they were doing, that they were even sometimes stalking these scientists at their homes. Well, I think I found an interesting, I don't know, odd connection between some of the so-called Israeli art students' locations and locations of Battelle labs and Battelle lab executives. In one instance, we have an Israeli art student living within a half a mile away from the vice president of Battelle Labs, Russell P. Austin. Coincidence? Possibly? I don't know. The more inputs I add into this Florida 2001 attacks event map, the stranger it gets. What's another really, really eerie connection that I had a hard time shaking since I've started working on this map again, since I've last spoken to you? Well, remember Ernesto Blanco, one of the victims of the AMI anthrax attack? Well if you're familiar with some of Whitney Webb's work and Emergent Biosolutions and Bioport, one of the crucial people behind the biothrax vaccine, very involved in this idea of bioterrorism and pandemic. His name is Robert Cadlick. in fact, Robert Cadlick is the guy who coined the phrase Dark winter. It's going to be a very dark winter in America, he says, during the dark winter exercise. Why would I mention Robert Cadlick and Ernesto Blanco at all on this map? Well, going according to my theory that I was discussing earlier in this episode that this might not have been random and collateral damage, maybe some of these victims were actually chosen specifically. Could Ernesto Blanco have been chosen based on where he lived? Just someone who saw him walking around in the neighborhood? Let's say that that's possible. Just so happens that Robert Cadlick, during the time, from what I can see, the 2001 anthrax attacks, lived 1,000 feet away from anthrax victim Ernesto Blanco. Again, could be a total coincidence, might not mean anything. These are new finds, individual finds that are not necessarily backed up by any particular theory or other evidence yet. I am finding other strange connections between the Manafort Brothers construction companies and 9-11 hijacker proximities. Too many to just completely write off. You can even find some of those on the map if you hold open the Giuliani tab at the same time as 9-11 hijackers. You'll just start seeing it and, and I'm sure you'll think it's just as weird as I do. But I would say now there's even more Connections on the map that reinforce this idea that Gloria Irish wasn't merely just a real estate agent. It was showing the 9/11 hijackers, of power of millions, and maybe Mike Irish wasn't just her husband or the editor of the Sun. I started expanding the Gloria Irish portions of the map, and what you'll find is she does have properties also listed, not on the east coast of Florida, but she also has properties sort of oddly near Lake Apopka, Florida, near some other, I guess you could call, anthrax suspects. Stephen Hatfield and Ken Alabick, who the FBI was looking at as another potential anthrax suspect. Gloria Irish has properties near them. Did Is it possible that she helped them procure their places of residence in Florida? I have no idea. But it's interesting where else she has properties in Florida sort of lines up in the general area where they are. But then when you go all the way over to the east coast of Florida, you start to even find more, I don't know, troubling connections between addresses listed under her or her husband and proximity to the hijackers. I triple-checked this bamboo lane address of Gloria Irish in proximity to the 9-11 hijackers. A payphone that one of the 9-11 hijackers was called from. A hotel that some of the 9-11 hijackers were staying at. Again, within 1,200 feet of a listed Gloria Irish property. But what else is weird when it comes to Gloria Irish and the hijacker's proximity? Well, one of the only properties I was able to find that's only listed under Mike Irish, all the other properties that are on this map are also listed under Gloria Irish or jointly with Mike Irish. But of all the properties I looked up, the only one I was able to find under only Mike Irish's name has by far the closest proximity to any known hijacker location that wasn't a hijacker location in relation to procuring an apartment via Gloria Irish. Because you could say, well, yeah, I mean, they were hanging out, you know, around Gloria Irish's real estate agency, her office, or they were hanging out in general near her because they were looking for apartments. Some of them were, you sure. Sure. But then why was one of the hijackers at a Kinko's buying something directly across the street from an apartment that Mike Irish listed without Gloria Irish's name in it? Out of all the properties that she had, how did the hijacker end up meeting them there? I guess, did the FBI look at this and say, oh, well, maybe they were meeting to sign some paperwork, but why here? Why this apartment complex at 2,500 North Federal Highway. This property was listed for Mike Irish in Boca Raton, Florida, in August 2010, but not Gloria Irish's name on it. This is literally across the street from what used to be a Kinko's at 2501 North Federal Highway. 2,500 North Federal Highway, 2501 North Federal Highway. That is right across the street from each other. 200 feet away from one another. So you tell me what that means. You tell me if Gloria Irish plays any kind of weird role in this. I have no idea. All I know is that I wasn't expecting to find so many connections between her and the 9-11 hijackers and other things on this map. Once I started this, I wasn't expecting to at all. This just confirms some of the things that researchers like Graham McQueen and myself have suspected based on the evidence we've seen. The FBI. The FBI even was putting suspicion in the air about Gloria and Mike Irish at the beginning, and then they shut that down right away. Why is that? We know that there's some kind of weird, distractionary, cartoonish spy game taking place in the form of the Israeli art students on the surface. Was there a different, more invisible layer of different kinds of espionage, maybe hiding in plain sight? Like in the same way some of these flight schools seem to have some kind of pipeline into organized crime and intelligence and would room and board these foreign nationals teaching them flying lessons? Was Gloria Irish some kind of, I don't know, middleman to bring people into the country to procure them residences and to also maybe provide them with other connections? I have no idea. This is just all speculation. She's still a real estate agent who has a listing online. Apparently, you can go look for an apartment from her right now if you wanted to. Lucky for her, she's also portrayed by a much more attractive actress in the upcoming National Geographic Hot Zone season two, I guess, three-episode miniseries. Gloria Irish inexplicably is being portrayed in this miniseries, along with Robert Stevens, Maureen Stevens. Mike Irish is not being portrayed, now the 9-11 hijackers are, but apparently at some point in the miniseries, the FBI is going to go interview Gloria Irish and try to figure out how the hell this weird connection happened between That basically puts her as a bridge between the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 attacks. So that's going to end this part of the continuing Amerithrax 20th anniversary investigation by Media Roots Radio. It's going to be a lot more stuff coming on the next episode. I'm not sure if that's going to be coming at the end of October or November, but I promise you there will be another one coming. I've already recorded a bunch of it, the research. Pretty much already done still waiting on some more pieces but i'll just give you an overview of what's going to be on that next episode we're going to finally clear up the rumors of and try to parse through the actual details and granularity of the bush administration being given cipro to inoculate themselves from anthrax on the evening of 9-11 and this really did happen we're going to go over that in detail we're also going to go over in detail how handwriting analysis was already being done by independent researchers, not just using the four known anthrax letters that the FBI likes to show off all the time, but also including some of the hoax letters and deciphering potential suspects through that, that this has already been done via independent researchers. And I'll show you what those findings are, and I'll explain to you what my own opinions are based on those. I'm going to take you through a much more detailed blow-by-blow timeline of the hoax versus the real letters and how potentially by comparing the exact timelines of and really getting into the details of the hoax versus the real letters, meaning the hoax St. Petersburg letters and the real letters that had real anthrax in them, and some other hoax letters too that happened around the same time that I think deserve to be mentioned, if we sort of line all this stuff up together, it could reveal the real perps by combining it together rather than omitting it like the FBI has and pretending it has nothing to do with it. That's something else we're going to do on the next episode. Also going to talk about how Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly used to claim that they would get letters from the person that wrote the anthrax letters that had the same handwriting. How other neocon Bush apologists were also getting anthrax letters. Then I'm going to talk about some very dark and bizarre connections between Rudy Giuliani, his company Bio One, that was hired to come in and clean up the American Media Inc. building on behalf of its new owner, David Rustin. And David Rustin is a mysterious real estate man in Florida who happens to have familial relations with a company called Marcor Remediation. Now, who is Marcor Remediation? Well, Marcor Remediation and Bio One were competing. Actually, Bio One sort of lost this contract to clean up the AMI building. Rudy's company lost this contract, so Marcor Remediation comes in and finishes the job. But how does David Rostin have family relations to this company, and what do they do? Well, Marcor Remediation actually takes credit for being the very first company on site to help remove the World Trade Center debris. So we have strange connections to the Manafort brothers, Paul Manafort, the World Trade Center crime scene cleanup, possible destruction of evidence. Rudy Giuliani was mayor of New York when all that was happening still. And now we have Rudy Giuliani coming back to Florida where he already owns property with his wife. If you look on the event attacks map, you can see some other properties Rudy owns. And a lot of his associates happen to be down in Florida too, as you can see. He comes down there in 2004 and does this big stunt claiming he's going to clean up the building. So I'm going to get into all that and a lot more in the strange twists and turns of how Rudy in his cleanup efforts essentially tried to destroy thousands of valuable employee files and the building owner, David Restine, gets in a big lawsuit over it. Apparently, one of these most valuable photos was the Elvis Coffin photo original that was worth millions of dollars. What were they doing in there? Was David Pecker still trying to get some of his stuff out of there? It's such a bizarre situation. There's so much of it to unpack on the next episode, but this one might be the weirdest one of them all because it connects Rudy Giuliani, Bernard Carrick, many of Rudy Giuliani's associates directly in the middle of this nexus of 9-11, anthrax and in some strange way some of the israeli art student activity
1: it's
0: so for next time everybody be well and take care and please consider becoming a patreon subscriber to media roots radio and abby will join us next time good night As I jumped off board, throbbing and rocking with jungle vibes. The bass was kicking out to all the tribes. Motor block quicking, palm trees shaking. I felt the earth move when I wasn't mistaken. Straight from the bottom right to the top. Miami jams, Miami rocks. Miami's rocking, baby. Miami jams. 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 jams. Check my box for the rental place. But just like George, it was way too whippy. So I scouted out for someone to help me everywhere I went. The brothers were bent, all pushing that base 100%. Because in Miami, you ain't nothing. Loud, I drew a crowd, Jerf Nick was coming down, handcuffs and me ain't never been friends, headed back to Miami so I could face again. Miami's rockin', baby, Miami Jam.